Ooh, now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy. Hello friends, and welcome to another episode of 119, the Twin Peaks podcast. Today, we're here to talk about part 17 of Twin Peaks The Return, The Past Dictates the Future. My name is Nick, I am joined as always by Dylan. Hi Dylan. Hello. And today, we are very happy to be joined by... Writer, YouTuber, musician, visual artist, a woman of many, many talents, Gisela Fleischer. Thanks so much for Thank being you. on with us. Thank you, guys. Nice to be here. Yeah, so I and a lot of Twin Peaks fans, I imagine, got introduced to you through your YouTube channel, which is called Garmin Bosia where you did reaction videos, live reaction videos, to a lot of episodes of Twin Peaks The Return. I think pretty much all the episodes in the back half of the season. I think you started with, what, episode 9, right? Yeah, that's right, because episode 8 aired. <laughs> you know, all of you know that that was an episode that pretty much blew people's minds, right? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really had... I would have given a lot of money to see myself in that situation, actually. And uh, I, I didn't know that reaction videos were a thing, but I figured maybe I'd give it a try. So I did. And I did it for fun. And I started out like without expectations, thinking that maybe 100 people would lo- watch it or something. And it turned out that I had a lot of people begging me to do more. And some people too who thought I sucked, but that's the way it goes on the internet, right? <laughs> so mm, sure yeah. is. Yeah, I really appreciated your videos. You know, not just because it's always great to see, you know, another hardcore Twin Peaks fan reacting to these incredible, outrageous episodes, uh, but also because you were able to pick up on a lot of stuff that. Like, I didn't pick up on the first time around, and I think most people didn't pick up on the first time around. Just little little observations, little callbacks, little connections that uh, I think a lot of people missed. Like, I know that, for example, and we've we've referenced uh, this on the show before, but you um, you noticed in the Sarah Palmer scene in the grocery store that the sounds that were happening were the same sounds from Firewalk With Me. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, which I, you know, I totally um, would not have pieced together the first really? time around. But, you know, oh, that was, okay. yeah, but uh, your videos are just full of stuff like that. And I, I would recommend that um, everybody go and, and check out Gisela's reaction videos because they really are uh, a lot of fun. Um, oh, thank you. Um, it, it, I mean, it makes me really happy to hear you say that because I was... Um, I was not holding back. I'm not that kind of a person. So I think we're talking about part 17 today. Um, mm-hmm. And during those parts, I cried like two, two, the last two parts. And also when the log lady died, I cried mm-hmm. like a crybaby, you know. Uh, and that's just the way I react to stuff like that. Because Twin Peaks is really 
you know, deep, deep, very deep in my heart. So mm. um, it's not a professional like YouTuber video or stuff because I'm just all over the place with my feelings <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I don't care. But some people don't like it and I'm glad that you do. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really, um, you know, I caught on to your videos pretty early and it got to the point where I would really look forward to seeing, uh, you know, how how you reacted to stuff every day. So every week <laughs> wow, rather. Thanks. Um, so yeah, do you want to give people just a little bit of history, um, as far as your relationship with the show goes, you know, how did you start watching Twin Peaks? Um, you know, where are you at with the return and just, uh, just generally your, your Twin Peaks journey? Oh, okay. Um, well, I live in Sweden and I grew up here, of course, um, Back then, when Twin Peaks aired, I was nine years old, a little young, I think. Um, and also, you know, I have never heard, never heard about that. In Sweden, we had like a public, we have public service channels, two of them. And when I grew up, we didn't have any other channels, basically. And since then, we have, of course, but that was all, you know. And I had also Danish TV because I'm in the south of Sweden. Mm -hmm. um, but when I heard about this for the first time, uh, I guess it was a part of my life where I was a bit older. Maybe I was 14 or 15 um, because I had friends that had started to pick it up. Uh, it was re-aired a couple of years uh, later um, on one of the commercial channels and some of them... Some of my friends watched it and really just spoke about it all the time. Uh, and in my mind, because I wasn't really a TV nerd or anything like that, and I, I'm still not, but in my mind, um, a TV series like it was was the same as a soap opera, basically, mm. because we had all mm -hmm. this Falcon Crest and, and Dallas. And actually, sure. what, what is it called? Uh, the a dynasty I really loved dynasty <laughs> for some reason right. um, but that was all I knew you know and we had like sunset beach uh, which is really the most crappiest thing I've ever seen uh, so I was I was kind of assuming that well it's another soap opera kind of thing uh, but someone just I think well I, I think someone just said to me you have to say this just take my word for this and here's a bag of, or two tote bags, basically, of uh, VHSs with crappy, copied Twin Peaks episode on it, <laughs> on them. So you can borrow them. Uh, and I say crappy, and it was, it, it, it's to, it's a, it's not a word that that really describes the quality at all because it was really bad. Um, VHSs that been copied like a thousand times before I got them. So. But I started to watch it. But before I did, um, and this is something that if you have one regret in life, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I did watch Firewalk with me uh, before I watched the series. Mm, me too. You did? <laughs> yeah, oh. I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I have been thinking about that a lot uh, lately. And I'm, I've come to the conclusion that some part, of that like failure is actually not a failure uh, because I really got to um, love that dark 
mystical feeling because I, in my mind, Fire Walk with Me is it has a special quality to it that you recognize from the series, but it's a bit different. Do you know what I mean? Um, Fire Walk with Me is is really dark and really surrealistic and mysterious. And since I live in Sweden, I I was part of a team that a team of friends that we were watching a movie for a movie night and someone else chose the movie and and the movie that they had rented was Firewalk With Me and uh, in that situation it was the Firewalk With Me international uh, version or the, the European version or the U- international right. ending or it's called um, so it was like a feature film so that's the one I watched and, and I, I guess that means that I, I got all those weird scenes with Bob in the basement and you know scenes that weren't really in Fire Walk With Me and they you know it was it's really strange uh, <laughs> I no seriously that's that's two different films right because I watched Fire Walk With yeah, Me and then the we pilot, yeah right? that yeah because yeah, the, the yeah, European sorry. pilot was sort of conceived as its exactly movie, I mixed them up right, yeah First we saw Fire Walk With Me and then I wanted to see more. So what I got my hands on before I got that tote bag, those those tote bags full of VHSs. Before that and after Fire Walk With Me, the only thing that I could find was the European version that I rented. So I I had a completely mixed up order of watching Twin Peaks and getting introduced to it. But... That's the way it was, and I had to just work from there. I couldn't do a lobotomy or something just to forget about it. Yeah, <laughs> just have to work with it. But it was like, oh, I already know who the killer is, you know. Uh, kind of pissed me off, but now when I think about it, I think uh, those mysterious things that I got to see, first of all, uh, from the European version and also of the pilot and also from Fire Walk With Me, I think was what I was really into. Uh, from the beginning mm-hmm. and I'm still very much into I mean I'm into Twin Peaks like people c- people are into Twin Peaks but maybe from, from, from different perspectives or for different reasons mm-hmm. um, and I really love the mythology and and the dark underlying themes of mysterious you know what is it what's going on and you don't re- you, you cannot even exactly pinpoint what's going on sometimes and I really like that Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I um, so you were pretty on board with uh, Fire Walk with me the first time you watched it. Then, like you, you really enjoyed it, despite not having really any context for uh, any of the characters of the town and whatnot. Exactly. Yeah, that that's the interesting part that I just was drawn to Fire Walk with me so much, and I had no idea because I had no context. You know, yeah. it seemed as like a, a, it's a sequel, prequel kind of film, but. Yeah, I was just uh, watching it without context, and I liked it very much. Hmm. Yeah, I um, yeah, I, I, I can't say I had the uh, the same experience with it. I think watching Firewalk with me actually probably prevented me from watching the show sooner. Uh, you know, I was. I guess I was a teenager when I saw Firewalk with me. I was probably like 16 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
you know, just because I, I was going through the, the Lynch filmography at that point, I decided, well, you know, I know this is a prequel to Twin Peaks, so it just makes sense for me to watch it first, right? You know, of course, having no mm-hmm. idea that the most important <laughs> yeah. mystery of the of the show was going to be revealed to me uh, in that movie. So, you know, I, I, I thought it was interesting, but, you know, I just, when you don't have that context as far as, like, well who's Donna, who's Bobby, who's Mike, like all these things, it just didn't really mean as much to me. And, you know, and when I saw that the show, you know, the whole central mystery was like, who killed Laura Palmer? I was like, well, I already know that. So (laughs) why do I need to watch the show? You know what I mean? And of course, like the show, um, you know, that question is really just the springboard for a lot of, a lot of other things. So it it took me a few, it took me a few years to, to come around to it. Oh, okay. Um, but anyway, so yeah, you, um, in addition to, uh, your YouTube channel, you've also been writing for, uh, 25 years later, correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, when, when I heard about the return coming, I, I, I freaked out because I was like, I love this, this universe of Twin Peaks so much. And what do you, you know, when the stakes are so high, because you're, you're really, you you don't want that you know if it's bad you, if you don't like it what what the hell are you gonna do then you know um so but I I liked it from the very start uh, and uh, when it started airing I had no contact with twenty five years later uh, site crew or 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 the people around that and uh, I also didn't make the the videos until as you said uh, to part to part nine so. I was so to speak on my own and what I did because I have I'm a, I'm a pretty bad badly you know Twin Peaks uh, salt freak basically and no one in my environment that I know of that I speak with you know none of my friends are as heavy into Twin Peaks as I am so I turned to the internet mm-hmm. and <laughs> I was uh, writing in all of the groups and ah oh, what about this and what about this and uh, at some point um, I, I wrote some uh, you know it's a post that you make but it was more like an article actually it was pretty long like a couple of thousand words or something and I I posted about Twin Peaks and Alchemy and uh, the Twin Peaks group that the one on Facebook that's not now called Twin Peaks Between Two Worlds um, one of the bigger ones you know um, mm-hmm. and I was contacted by the crew by Andrew and, and Cheryl from 25 years later site and pretty bit, I, I guess I was headhunted or something for for the site and started writing for them so I since then I was part of a crew so that's that was um, a pleasant surprise I, I hadn't imagined being that into it in in, the, in that kind of way but it just turned out that it worked out for me I liked it so mm-hmm. I've been writing I've been writing uh, you know, I'm one of those people who doesn't who doesn't write like uh, every week or even every month. But I, when I do write, I write like humongous articles, like right. mm-hmm. uh, uh, eight thousand words 
<laughs> and then I take breaks <laughs> and stuff. But it's fun. It's fun to it's fun to write about something that I never done that before in that way. Mm-hmm. Something that you're really into. Yeah, we've 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 had a few people from uh, the 25 years later crew yeah, on the that. show so far. Uh, you know, we we had John Bernardi and uh, we had Andrew. Uh, yeah. Last week we had um, Ain and Lindsay from Bickering Peaks, so you know we've mm-hmm. we've really uh, we, we've uh, <laughs> we're, we're big fans of the site. Uh, oh, needless that's to say, um, it's been growing ever since. So yeah, it's fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, yeah, I guess let's just get into this particular episode, part let's seventeen. The past dictates the future. I would uh, start off by asking our guest, like, hey, what did you think of this episode? What did you think when you first saw it? But uh, I already know that because it's on YouTube. (laughs) Uh, And I know that your reaction was um, probably similar to mine and a lot of people's, which was, like, uh, stunned. uh, Intense, yeah. Disbelief. (laughs) Um, Lots of... uh, emotions uh flying all over the place oh yes um yeah this is uh, i mean there's so much in this episode that ranks among the most shocking things i've ever seen on tv i mean i just when cooper goes back in time (laughs) to fire walk with me i was just like speechless yeah i I, 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 i agree with you i mean how how could anyone have seen this coming? I was just stunned. Yeah, so I yeah. know what you mean. What about what about you, Dylan? What was what was going through your head through uh, the madness that was this episode? Yeah, it's similar to you guys. I was pretty speechless. I was of all the things that um, I was maybe expecting. It was not uh, a trip back to 1989. Like I, I just didn't, um, I didn't for in a million years expect that that was the nature of Cooper's goal because it, it's it's really interesting watching it now and trying to piece together uh, some of the 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 breadcrumbs of the plans that Cooper, the fireman, and Gordon seemed to be uh be hip to but at the first time watching it as far as i was concerned cooper's only plan was to destroy uh mr c that's what it seemed like was happening for me and then when that happened like 20 minutes into the episode i was like wait what's what's about uh what's about to happen now and yeah i i for sure was i i reacted pretty viscerally uh the first time when you you get that the the black and white face of Coop and then you 
uh, are shown these these images from Firewalk with me, recognize it right away, and um, I think like I sort of intuitively knew what Cooper was trying to do at the at the moment, and um, got a really bad feeling about it. I was like, "This is <laughs> this is tenuous. This could this could go wrong in a lot of ways." Um, but I was still um, just like, it, "I've never been as enamored with a scene." I don't think um, something that really took me into a a whole new place where, like, I feel like I could have got a I could have got a a text message that said, "Hey, you you just won a million dollars," and I would have thrown <laughs> my phone across the room, like, "I'll deal with that later." What's going exactly. on here? Um, yeah, it, it's. If I, the roof I, of my apartment would be blown off right then and there, I wouldn't care. You know, it's yeah, exactly. It was just <laughs> so into it. It was ridiculous. Also, so yeah. I also, I recognize what you see. And and. So it was same. partially seeing or knowing that the this was a two-parter that was even freaking me out even more because like what I yeah. expected to happen in the finale period happened 20 minutes into the first part so it just it, it had me hook line and sinker um, so that was what you were expecting for the the final final part more or less I was expecting um, you know I uh, wrongfully assumed that Mr. C was the big bad evil guy of the of the return and um, you're kind of told right off the bat in this episode not necessarily um, you, you you really for the first time get an exposition on Judy um, one that at least watching now I recognize for as evil and as powerful as Mr. C is he is largely a pawn uh, for both sides, it seems for for the fireman and for Judy, he's kind of a he's really evil and powerful in our realm. But when it comes to these other types of forces, he is a bit of a like a pawn. He was used, uh, and how he um, how he was used is sort of remains to be seen, um, or like to whose <clears throat> end to whose end he truly benefited. Um, but yeah, I did I did think that that was sort of uh, going to be a huge part of the resolution like two two coopers facing off mm-hmm. how yeah. could this uh <laughs> how can this go down and it it goes down but it goes down early and it left me really really uh excited and um just glued to my my eyeballs were glued to the screen for the next hour <laughs> and 40 minutes just nothing could stop me from finding out what happened and i still didn't find out what happened but <laughs> i watched it that's <laughs> yeah, yeah i agree i was i was the only thing that I can think of, and I think I said this out loud in the re- reaction videos too, I was just thinking, this is wrong. You know, this mm-hmm. is too easy. This is... I, I'm i not saying it's wrong in the sense that, oh, David Lynch and company failed in their mission to make the return, you know? Uh, it, it's mm-hmm. just within the series, this is wrong, if you mm-hmm. know what I mean. It's just... Uh, yeah something here is and and that's something that I thought about uh, since then Uh, I don't know if you noticed but in the first episode that first part that was a two-parter actually I think Mm -hmm. um, that we got from the return um, there's a lot of people saying the phrase this uh, something is wrong did you notice that right like Mike 
the, Mike uh, the just, red room. Yeah, yeah. Mike, mm-hmm. and there's something wrong with James, and something is wrong, and something. I think it, at least three people um, that 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 don't even know each other say that, and it, it feels like it's a message in some kind of way to us. And and when it comes to the question, okay, if that's wrong, what's right? Uh, I'm not very sure. I'm not sure that it, there is a right, but it's just a fact that something is wrong. Mm. And I, I, I also felt that, that uh, Cooper was making a big mistake. I had a similar feeling uh, as I was watching this whole, you know, quote-unquote resolution go down with the destruction of Bob and the death of Mr. C and Cooper going to save Laura. It, it all seemed a little bit too, a uh, little bit too neat. And yeah. I think the fact that I knew that there was a whole episode left really reinforced that feeling. Like, yes, yes, you know, this is not the way that this is going to end. It, it, it isn't. It isn't going to be easy. And you know, I've seen David Lynch. I know what he does, and he's probably going to pull the rug out from under us in a pretty extreme way. That, that was how I felt about it. Um, it just, yeah, it just. It just gave me that feeling right off the bat, even though I was extremely emotional watching all of that happen as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what, what really made that feeling stronger for me, because I had that feeling as well, and I think a lot of people had, um, but th- the fact that Cooper's face from, well, basically, I think he's in the Black Lodge, but that face superimposed over what's happening when, when that mm-hmm. face appears, I think... For me, um, and I'm, I'm probably not alone in this uh, feeling. But for me, that was a confirmation of some sort that this is not, this is not happening. You know, <laughs> this is right. something here is wrong to that point to the point that this it, it's not even happening, like we see it, and and I don't know if I'm, you know, going out on a on a on a another topic now but but if you read um, the final dossier that came out uh, later um, there's a lot of things that are wrong with that as well as it, as it were with in the case of the, the the secret history of Twin Peaks of course a lot of things were off and and not correct and ages and, and uh, ages of people and places and situation that, that we knew from from the original run that that were described differently but when you read uh, Tamara Preston's account of what was happening at the sheriff's station she um, I think she says or writes uh, in the final dossier that she was she was there when it happened like she was an eyewitness to um, to the fight with Bob and, and that's not true I mean, it's not true considering what we are seeing in part 17 because they arrive after that fact. So yeah, right. It's a right. lot of lot of things that are off and wrong, and mm-hmm. and, and but the face that we see, the superimposed face of Agent Cooper, not to, not to mention the fact that he is actually saying we're living inside a dream. We live mm-hmm. inside a dream. I think he says. Um, I mean, it's just a, for me. It's just a sign that. What we are seeing is not—it's not the reality at all. Yeah, yeah, you're you're right. I mean, there is no truth, and I guess we should say right off the bat here that uh, anyone coming to this podcast looking for, uh, 
you know, a, a clean, uh, unambiguous breakdown of, of what goes on in this show is probably going to be disappointed because uh, that's that's not what we're going to do here. I don't personally believe that there is a, uh, uh, you know, a quote-unquote key to understanding the show. Um, the reality of the show breaks down pretty heavily in these next couple of episodes, and it's it's just not, I mean... I I don't. It doesn't matter what kind of theories you uh, you throw out there. Um, It's you can always find holes in them, and you can always find inconsistencies, and there's always questions that you can raise. So, um, you know, we're gonna do a little bit of uh, theory crafting here, probably, but you know, we're certainly not we're not here to solve it. I guess you could say. Um, yeah, I I agree. I I don't think there there's a, a key, one key to to unlock all, all of the mysteries and the inconsistencies. And I think that anyone who looks for such a thing when going into something that David Lynch or, or Frost or both both of them together uh made, I think will be disappointed. But some people seem to 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 hate the return and Twin Peaks and stuff because just because of that, but then I think that's it's not for you. Uh, with with all the respect, you know. But what I think it's, I wouldn't like one solution actually. I would like to not have the solution as as we do have no solution now, uh, because I find it's interesting to talk about it and to see. Oh, oh my God! Did you inter- interpret that? in that way that's I've never thought about before because really good art in my opinion will make you think and make you you know ponder in 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 eternity (laughs) more or less and and it's not um that feeling is not a bad feeling for me it's the opposite it's a good feeling because it, it kind of expands your mind in some way we should probably get into what actually happens in this episode now. Okay. Um, so the first scene that we get here is basically a continuation of the Diane scene from the previous episode where her tulpa is shot and killed and returns to the Red Room. We meet the Blue Rose Task Force here in their uh, famous hotel room in Buckhorn, South Dakota, Right off the bat here, we get kind of a uh, kind of a crude joke from uh, <laughs> from from Gordon, uh, you know, with Albert saying, "Oh, you've gone soft," and Cole responding, "Not where it counts, buddy." And uh, of course, uh, there's a quick cut, and we see Tammy sort of giving a little giving a little knowing look, perhaps, which um, I think probably is fuel to the fire for this idea that there's something going on between Cole and Tammy. At least that's how I read it. I don't love that. Um, but I do think that that's what's being implied. Uh, do you guys have an opinion about that? That went over my I, head. I have never thought of that in that way, but I agree with you that it annoys me a bit. In fact, I have to say that in when reading The Secret History of Twin Peaks pre The Return, I got the feeling that Tammy was much more of a, you know, um, independent and and, and tough girl or woman, of course. 
uh, it actually disappointed me me a little bit to see her uh, because she wasn't the one the, the the kind of and I'm not I'm not blaming that on, on Christabel. I'm blaming it if if blaming at all. I'm blaming it on on the screenplay because I think uh, she wasn't given the more or the 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 kind of respect maybe that she was deserved deserved mm-hmm. of. So. You know, back to if you just look at the scenes where her, where when they standing outside, just met Cooper uh, earlier in the in the season, uh, or Mister C, I should say, in in prison or in jail, uh, when when um, the shot for when when Tammy is walking into some kind of restaurant, I think, mm-hmm. and they're like commenting on her body and stuff. So no, mm-hmm. not an imp. But you know, not not explicit, explicitly. Sorry, not explicitly, but implying with their looks and their. I'm feeling much better now, and as Albert says and stuff. I feel uh, it's a little bit more, much of that. I could do without that, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I I also read the the secret history and was uh, pretty disappointed with the way that Tammy ended up being portrayed. She's much more capable in the book the yeah. way that frost wrote her she's much more um she's much more assertive she's she's a lot smarter yeah she just seems a lot more attuned to what's going on and ultimately in the show she ends up becoming more of a sidekick and um, and that's a shame because she could be a kick-ass detective just like yeah know, like I, I albert agree. or 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 maybe like like cooper a new cooper not a, not a not a substitute for cooper of course but you know like a new fierce character that you could really you know identify with mm-hmm. she was yeah I, to yeah me. i totally i totally agree I, I think that they really missed an opportunity there especially because lynch takes a lot of grief sometimes for um the way that women are depicted in his films as we've, sure. as we've discussed before and um I think that they really had an opportunity here to, you know, have a really, uh, a really strong and capable uh, woman in a position of power in the show, and instead she's kind of, uh, like I said, relegated to sidekick status, and um, you know, even objectified at times. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's probably sure, yeah. that's probably one of the only aspects of this season that I just, um, just like unambiguously don't like at all is yeah, the way that, yep. that that Tammy was handled. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, it is what it is. It's, it's, it's unfortunate, but the, the gist of the scene, the, the real meat of the scene here is that we get this reveal about Judy, um, that she is a quote unquote extreme negative force. And I, I say she just because, you know, Judy is a female name, but I, I think it's probably, uh, I don't know that extreme negative forces uh the, <laughs> you know necessarily have a, have a gender per se but um yeah and gordon reveals that mr or that major briggs rather was the person who had discovered uh the existence of judy and that he cole and cooper had put together a plan some time ago that would ultimately lead them to judy this is a pretty intense retcon yeah. from yeah. what had come before <laughs> Uh, to we say know, the least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we know from some behind-the-scenes gossip that 
Judy, as referenced by Jeffries in Firewalk with Me, was originally going to be Josie's sister, right. <laughs> if I recall correctly. And yeah. you know they had, they had this whole other plan for it, um, and now they've really changed it to uh, not only do we know that Judy is not a person, we know that she is a uh, some sort of primordial evil, and not only that, but she is in a lot of ways, like you mentioned at the outset, Dylan, kind of the um, like the secret villain of the show and actually a big motivating force behind a lot of uh, what happens with Agent Cooper in this season. And uh, what we hear in this scene is actually going to inform a lot of the ways that people interpret what happens, uh, not just in these next couple episodes, but with the show in general. And I just think it's really... It's interesting uh, this way in which this shadow narrative has been revealed. It's it's a little odd to get it this late in the game, but it, it's a pretty um, I don't know. It's a pretty audacious move in a lot of ways. I got to say. Yeah, it really it it leaves you it leaves you wanting. At least it left me wanting to pause and then go watch the last sixteen episodes again. Be like, wait, hold on, what? What did I miss? This is what's been happening the whole time, but yeah, I, it it um it it does really. It, the first thing I thought of it was like, wait a second, this you mean the Cooper from the original run? So that did this happen off screen uh, during season two, um, mm. or are we dealing with some uh, some unofficial version business here? But yeah, the this does inform. I think this is almost like a primer. It's like okay, this is relevant pieces of information uh that will make watching the next two hours um at least somewhat uh have somewhat of a context you know what i mean like it'll give it some sort of a um you you maybe know what this invisible uh thing actually is and and it's called judy and these are the people who discovered it two of them went missing um but yeah the the biggest thing that popped into my head was that was that retcon or maybe just the um, insinuation that there was something happening behind the scenes that we just didn't have, uh, we weren't shown at all. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Uh, it's um, implied that it happened during the, the original run, maybe. Um, and in that case, we, we, uh, we are given information that, are, that is t- totally new to us. Because we didn't see anything uh, of that going on, as as is the case, of course, with like uh, uh, Doug, I mean uh, the, the the brother of of um, the major uh, Doug Milford, mm. uh, a very small part in the original run, mm-hmm. who turned up to be <laughs> apparently to, uh, a very important uh, right. character, but. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of debate about Judy and who is Judy, and I was, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people who are not, who's not, who's, who are not thinking about Judy in, 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 in the way of like who is it, you know. A lot of people know, think, you know, think of of Judy as Sarah Palmer, or, or Judy is the one who is possessing Sarah Palmer I'm not one of those uh, I wrote about that a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of things <laughs> about that yeah I was, I was gonna ask later. you about that actually yeah, yeah um, 
because it makes no sense that in the final dossier uh, Yudi uh, is described or Yaude or Yodi with <laughs> U O yeah. U um, is described as uh, it's not not as a deity but as a species of these um, Sumerian Utaku or Utuku demons. Um, and if it's a big negative force, it's a huge negative force. Uh, I think that it doesn't have to be an ind- individual. I, in my opinion, it's uh, more like a feeling. Like it's uh, what's the opposite of love? We are told this all of, all through, uh, especially season two. Um, the opposite of love isn't hate, but the opposite of love if, is fear. Yeah. So in that in, in that respect, I think that fear might be just a just about as closest quote-unquote evil as you can get in the Twin Peaks universe because fear is something that will um, prevent you from not only um, you know a fight evil or bad forces outside of yourself but also within yourself as you can see uh, would I would argue as you can see uh, like when when Cooper enters the Black Lodge in seasons two and in my opinion he is not ready to do that, and his his mind is is too fearful. So, in that way, he he, uh, he fails, and 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 mm-hmm. that's the argument I base that on is more or less Hawk uh, and and the things that we are told during season two that um, if you enter the Black Lodge without with imperfect courage, uh, and, and that's that's the fear I think um, it will mm-hmm. utterly annihilate your soul. So that's if it, if that isn't a big negative, huge negative force, then I don't know what is. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I I um I like I, I do like that interpretation, and I, I like what um, Joel Baco, who's a great Twin Peaks writer and, and podcaster, has to say about the whole Judy phenomenon, which is that he he basically believes that it's like a metaphor for for trauma. And yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, and I do believe, I actually, um, I don't believe that Sarah Palmer, like, is Judy. Like, I don't think that that's what's happening at all, or, um, or that Judy is inhabiting her, or that, uh, Judy is limited to the body of Sarah Palmer at all, necessarily. But I do think that, um, I, I do think that Sarah is being influenced in some yes. way yeah. by it. I agree. Uh, I, I think that she has been touched by Judy to a certain extent. And if for no other reason, than you know, we learn all this stuff about agent Cooper here at the beginning. And the fact that, you know, he and Briggs were very intent on seeking out this negative force. And where do they end up at the end? They end up at the Palmer house. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And so that's why I, I think that Sarah Palmer is, um, associated with with Judy in some way, but I don't I don't think that she is Judy, and I think that like on a metaphorical level, you know, Judy is sort of um, acting as the the aftermath of of you know everything that's happened to Sarah, you know, with her her daughter being murdered, and then the discovery that her husband is the murderer, and then his death. It just sort of um, like her her collective trauma from that whole situation is manifested as this extreme negative force as we call it 
So I definitely, um, I definitely wouldn't put such a literal stamp on it to say that Sarah Palmer is Judy, but I do, I do believe that we're meant to um, think of her as being under the thumb of Judy in some sense. Do, do you, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Um, yeah. When when Hawk comes to visit her at the Palmer house after the incident at the, the grocery store. I listened carefully to the sound that you can hear coming from, well, she says it's something in the kitchen. Right. Uh, and I don't know if you saw that. I put a video up where I tried mm-hmm. to play that sound over and over a few times. Uh, and, and if you listen carefully, you can actually hear the electricity underneath that, the sound of the glasses or the bottles of whatever it is. Uh, there's that humming no- noise underneath that, um, and I know I'm not sure what it means, but it could be like uh, there's it, it, it might be just a sign that there's something going on at the Palmer House. I definitely think that that you're right when you're saying um, I I agree with you when you say that she's associated or have been associated like have been you know, uh, influenced by this negative force, absolutely. And mm. um, it might be a portal there of some some kind. I don't know. It's just uh, we have we have a lot of portals in, in the return that we didn't know about. The only portal that we really knew about was Glastonbury Grove from, from the original run. So, And here we see right. so many other examples of portals. So I don't I, I don't think it's weird or strange if if there should be some kind of if not portal that maybe some kind of slip through time and space or something that made it appear in her house and she is like bound to the house in some way something tells me we're not done uh talking about judy just yet (laughs) yeah i have Uh, thoughts but i'm saving them yeah, yeah, there's still... I don't think we're not we're not going to talk about Judy. <laughs> Keep her out of it. <laughs> for, just for a few minutes, like literally okay. just a few minutes, we're not going to yeah. talk about Judy. Sure. Okay. Um, but yeah, so we also, we also get some other information here in this scene. We learned that Cooper had told Cole that if I... He says, quote, if I disappear like the others, do everything you can to find me. I'm trying to kill two birds with one stone. Which... Uh, we will remember was something that was said to him by the giant, aka the fireman, in the first episode. Pretty interesting. Um, do you do either of you guys have a take on what is meant by uh, this two birds and and one stone phrase here? My gut is telling me that the two birds are uh, are Judy and Lara. That he that Cooper's goal his intention is to save Lara and find or destroy Judy and that he's almost like using using his he's almost like it's like a chess match like he's trying to save Lara primarily but he understands that Judy whatever Judy is is on to him so he is it, it, trying to uh, ensnare Judy with his original plan that's that's my best uh, shot at it. I think it is a very evocative statement, and obviously, since we're we're given that statement, the uh, as part of the very very first thing we see, um, shrouds it in significance for me. 
Uh, so, and, and then based on, you know, what we are left with at the, at the end of, at the very end of the finale, um, with, with Richard and Laura at, or Richard and Carrie at the, the Palmer house, um, you could potentially make the argument that that was sort of his two birds with one stone to get Laura and then to use Laura's scream to somehow knock the electricity out of this house and whatever that means symbolically you could say that it means he's destroying judy or that he is doing some other thing but um i i definitely feel like it's a two-part plan one that involves finding laura but doesn't necessarily end there and whether and i'm sure we'll talk in this episode and in the next episode about the nature of the finale and whether or not you can like it can you interpret that as a success or a failure or what um but that's that's just that's where my head went is that mm. if you're going to interpret it literally um yeah you got one one of the one of the birds is uh finding and saving lara which is clearly his goal that's what leland asks him to do in part 2 or 1 and um then the other one being to use lara in some way to uh uh, get at this his this other goal, which I I would feel comfortable saying that it is to find Judy because that's what Philip Jeffries says to, to Cooper. Like this is where you'll find mm-hmm. Judy. Um, I mean, it's what we're literally told, you know, in this first right. scene here, and um, what's implied later in the sheriff station when Cooper uh, alludes to the fact that you know we're we're acting on information given to us by Major Briggs. You know what I mean? Right. And he says um, the past so would... dictates the future. Which is mm-hmm. two birds, one stone. I'd say. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I I tend to agree with you th- that my gut feeling or my my thoughts are going in the same direction. But also, I I tend to be critical to <laughs> self-critical to my my own way of thinking, and maybe it's more metaphorical. Maybe it's more like a. I don't know. Sure. Maybe it's, yeah. he, he realizes in some way that he is. I I think that he Cooper realizes that he is in some way in over his head in some some kind of way. You know that and trying to kill two birds with one stone could also mean that regardless what he is what is re, what he is referring to, it's like I'm I'm doing all I can. You know, I'm I'm not really. I'm not. I'm not really trying to capable. do too much. Arguably, yeah, right? I'm. I'm yeah. not really capable of doing all that I want to do. So I'm in. I'm real. I'm in real danger of of actually disappearing, just like the other ones. There's a lot of information that gets revealed in the scene. It's one of the most explicit information dumps that we receive in the entire season. I mean, there's just so much going on here. We learn about Judy. We learn about this whole. Uh, plan involving Cole, Cooper, and Briggs to find Judy. We also learned that, oh, by the way, Ray Monroe is an FBI informant. Um, and then the scene ends with Gordon Cole receiving a phone call from the Las Vegas FBI. Um, and uh, Bushnell Mullins gives him a message from uh, the person that he knows as Dougie telling him, um, you know, all this information that he's headed for Twin Peaks, and, you know, he mentions 253, the the number of completion, etc. So that sends Gordon off to Twin Peaks. 
Um, Can I just add so we don't miss this? Uh, sure. I love mm-hmm. when Bushnell Mullen is saying, "I'm his boss," <laughs> and yeah. and, uh, yeah. and Gordon replies, "That makes two of us." You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I love I just that too. find that, that I was just laughing at that. Funny yeah, thing. and of course, of course, uh, Dougie is Cooper. How the hell is this? Yeah, uh, that's a, that's a classic right there. Um, so there's okay, so there's that scene. Uh, and before we uh, head to Twin Peaks, uh, just very briefly, we get our very last bit of Ben Horn. Uh, he gets a phone call from the police saying that they have found Jerry. Uh, he's naked, apparently, and ranting about how his binoculars killed someone. In Wyoming, <laughs> right? Uh does he say that? I don't remember. I think he does. He's far away from where he used to be. So, okay. In my opinion, he must have either find a portal or found a, a hitchhiking or hitchhiking situation or something. But he's uh, he's far away and he's naked. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Without it, identification. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, this is this is it for for Ben Horn. This is the last we see of Ben Horn. Uh, in Twin Peaks is him receiving this phone call about his brother. Um, shout out to Richard Beamer. I thought he was fantastic in this episode, uh, or in this uh, this season, rather. Uh, I liked some of the subtlety that was added to Ben Horn's character in the season. I thought that we we saw some real growth and maturity, and you know, I'm I'm on record as being a big fan of uh, his scenes with Beverly. I th- I think they're very sweet. And I also, uh, of course, love his monologue about his bike. So. Yeah, the the bike monologue is it, so fantastic. Also reminded me a lot of of that scene when he's at the bottom in in the original run, and he's just making silly uh, hand gestures at that when he's watching the the tapes from the fifties mm-hmm. uh, or the film from the fifties and laughing and just being nostalgic and I, I think I think that the bike scene was a nod to to that scene so I, I agree I found that pretty sweet mm-hmm. yeah I've spoken a lot about how I, I really love Richard Beamer and and enjoy the character of Ben Horn so I won't say too much but it, it there's so many great actors in in the return um, actors and actresses, but uh, I'd say Richard Beamer just technically is is very high on the list. Uh, he he has such a command of uh, like when the when the camera is on him, I I really I can't stop listening and looking. He just has a he has a an absolute like charisma about him, and I was really happy to see the character's growth in the return, especially because of all the zany antics that uh, that he's up to in in uh season two to see him really have uh just a it wasn't it wasn't i would i could have like i would have enjoyed a bit more with him but what we got i think was absolutely um just perfect and uh i like that we give these little farewells to to these characters let's let's head to twin peaks uh where We see that Mr. C is on his way to Jackrabbit's palace. He has these coordinates. He's eliminated the other two coordinates by sending Richard up to be vaporized uh, by this this trap of some sort. So he's got these coordinates that lead him to 
the Golden Pool. And this is the same place that we saw Naido show up, uh, you know, in the nude a few episodes ago. And he pretty much immediately gets sucked up into the portal. And we're all thinking, holy shit, what's going to happen when he gets to the fireman's house? Uh, which some people believe is uh, the White Lodge. Uh, people believe they're one and the same. Um, and as soon as you get there, uh, in a hilarious bit of staging, he is his head is encased in a cage. It's cooped. Uh, it's what it he is. is. He he's is. Cooped. Yes. He's yeah. literally cooped. And um, he's in a coop. Yeah, and uh, Gisela, you pointed this out in your reaction video, uh, but it, it kind of looks like he's he's engulfed by uh, black fire. I think he is. This. Yeah, there's black smoke all around his face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. I never interpreted it that way, but I like looking at it now. I was like, huh, that that kind of makes a certain amount of sense. Um, so yeah, he's he's in a cage. Uh, and to the right of the screen, we see the giant floating head of Major Briggs. Um, I love him. Uh, I'm I'm yeah. so sad that Don Davis wasn't alive for this season. Oh, but yeah. I think that I have I to say they made a brilliant job working him into the plot without him being alive. <laughs> so yeah, I, I just yeah I, we've talked about this before, but I just have so much respect for Lynch and Frost and the way that. They would rather, like, they have such a firm vision for the way they want the story to go that they would rather replace actors with, like, symbols and objects and visual effects than rewrite the script. You know, like, they had to have Major Briggs, so he's just a giant floating head. And he's a decapitated corpse. Yeah, You know, they wanted to have Philip Jeffries, so he's... Uh, you know, he's a giant steam machine thing, you know? <laughs> it's like, I just, I love, that is just so wonderful to me. Yeah, It's me great. Too. Although I do, it is, it is, um, it is sad that Don Davis wasn't around to, to, to do this season because um, I'm sure that had he been alive, uh, he would have been given an even, even juicier part to play. Oh, I, I don't want to think about it because it's, uh, it's a mind blowing thought. What would mm-hmm. happen if he, if they had both David Bowie and uh, and Don Davis, right? Mm-hmm. And also, yeah. I mean, Pete. I I, I just Pete's one of my all time favorite characters. I just love Pete. Mm-hmm. So, well, let's yeah. not think about that because I'm gonna cry or something. But yeah, <laughs> I think they did a, a good job. And I also think I I like the fact that some of the CGI effects are a bit corny or is a bit off. And uh, it doesn't bother me uh, in this context, if you know what no. I mean. Mm-hmm. It looks it looks a little bit weird, you know. Uh, just yeah. that head and that to. coop, and yeah, and I, I I like that. Yeah, the otherworldliness of it um, really like it was useful to me to like tell me how. I think it's like a a telegraphing of how to how to watch a scene like this because absolutely nothing is happening. Um, the way it does in your reality, the viewer, this whole thing is different. This is not meant to be viewed as like a, uh, a thing happening in our reality. And so yeah, exactly. I think it, so. It, yeah. yeah. The, the metaphysics is they, they are different. Exactly. In this reality is something else. And it's the same so, with yeah. the red room. 
It's the same reason that you know the characters talk backwards and and move in in ways that seem very foreign to us, just because um, it's meant to. I love that it, the you know the fireman's house has its own aesthetic, and it almost has like this cardboard cardboard cutout kind of uh, stop motion feel to it, um, which I think is it like it, it puts me in a place as a viewer, it gives me like a. It gives me a different frame of reference, that one that I really appreciate, and we don't get it all the time. We don't, we don't, we don't get to go to the fireman's house all the time. So when we do, it's really, it's really weird, and I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. I totally agree. I also like how there's a shot of just rows and rows of these electrical machines that we see uh, mm-hmm. before. Um, it's the same machine that I think sounds the alarm uh, to the yeah. giant in it part is. eight. Yep. Is, um, yeah. And I, th- I think, so. if I'm not mistaken, it's also the same machine that Nido touches in part three, correct? Before she falls off into space? Yeah, they're yeah. all similar. similar. It's uh, Also, the, the Jeffries, uh, whether he is the machine yeah. or he's inside the machine. I think they're same, yeah. the same, yeah. Yep, totally. And um, I like this because it, it just confirms that um, Major Briggs and, and the firemen are, are in on this plan somehow to ensnare Mr. C and send him here uh, to the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station for their own purposes. Um, you know, based on what we've, we've just heard Gordon say, it, it makes a certain amount of sense. As much sense as it, as it can, I guess. Yeah. Um, I so, think so, because he's like, yeah. he's like shuffling through um, this, this on stage when, when, when uh, Mr. C uh, enters the cage he mm-hmm. he wants to go to this place that we can see depicted on the stage or on the screen there. And that's the Palmer House. Right, the House. Palmer House. Yeah. But he, right. when the giant, he is levitating just like he did when he was creating the Golden Orb in part mm-hmm. eight. And he's like, like swiping his hand, you know, to, to shift yeah, the scenes he, and stuff. He does an iPhone swipe. Yeah, he yeah. does. Or, <laughs> yeah, or a Tinder swipe or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, he exactly. swipes left on Mr. C. Yeah, Sorry. he does. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Too bad. Yeah, and I think very revealing the fact that um, we see the Palmer House here because I think yes. it suggests that this is where Mr. C wanted to go, even if he didn't know exactly that the Palmer House was the source of this evil. Um, I think it shows that it's probably where he did end up wanting to go. You know, we see the 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 symbol on his card early in the season which we think might correspond to judy you know some debate about that but i i just think it all fits in a certain kind of way yeah he outright um, asks philip jeffries uh like who is judy or where is judy he's you know right on un- unambiguously that's who or what he's looking for and um i i agree it's pretty significant that that's the that's the bait you know, and then we see the switch, and it's really I I do agree with you too, Nick. That I don't think that Mister C knew exactly where he was trying to go, and I think in a lot of ways he is motivated by Bob. Uh, right. So like, and, and that's evidenced to me by the fact that he seems confused when he's at the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station, but he just goes with it because he's not yeah. he doesn't have the agency to be like, oh, hold on a second, I I was supposed to go actually. You know, he's only a few streets away. You know what I mean? In theory, he's not <gasps> Twin Peaks. Uh, in a big I, town. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure. I agree. Uh, just because he says, "What is this?" 
Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. He seem, it seems like he is disappointed in the result of his portal travel. Uh, but but first, let me say that I'm I'm not sure that Palmer House is actually his his final destination. It might just be. Uh, I mean, we already discussed the fact that we kind of agree more or less that the Palmer House and and yeah, Sarah Palmer inside of the Palmer House is are associated with not not necessarily possessed by, but in my mm-hmm. opinion, associated with this this great power ne- negative force that is uh, Judy. Um, in a metaphorical way or, or other way, uh, but it's not. It, ha, what is to say uh, that that's the final um, destination for Mister C? We don't know. Um, I'm open for for the fact to the fact that it might be just another, you know, s- stop at this, this journey towards finding what he, whatever he wants to find. Maybe he wants to use Sarah Palmer to somehow get information on where to go next or whatever mm-hmm. but when yeah, I, don't, to- I don't think um i don't think he necessarily knows exactly what he's looking for in a physical sense i know that he i i mean i feel that he he's looking for this this quote-unquote extreme negative force but i don't feel that he knows what form it's going to take um and i think that's why he he asked jeffrey's like who is judy like i don't I don't think that he necessarily equates the name Judy with the force that he's looking for. And I don't necessarily think that he equates the Palmer house with what it is that he's looking for. But I do think that the, uh, the visual language that we see in this scene, uh, suggests that the Palmer house is, is the, uh, is the source of this power that he's looking for. You know, I just don't know why otherwise we would see, first the Palmer house and then the swipe to, to somewhere else. It's like, this is where you want to go, but we're going to swipe on you and we're going to take you to where we want you to go. So, you know, that's, it's obviously up for conjecture, but that's why I, I personally believe that his goal is the Palmer house. Even if he doesn't necessarily know that it is, he just believes that going to these coordinates is going to lead him there somehow. Yeah. You know what I'm Remember, saying? remember the fact that, uh, when he, when Agent Cooper uh, became two, so to speak, in, in the last episode of season two, uh, it seems like the doppelganger has all of the original Cooper's memories. Um, I think we have, yeah, yeah, he does. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. That's that's right. that's one of the points. But so I also think that that he remembers that weird, strange. Um, Situation in, in Philadelphia uh, where uh, Philip Jeffries appears but didn't appear or whatever it is that Gordon says about that uh, but he mentions Judy in that uh, in that conversation when, when he is suddenly at mm-hmm. the F- FBI office in Philadelphia so I think he, re- he has those memories so he knows there's something about this Judy character but I, I agree with you, Nick, that I don't think that he... I, I think he's more clueless, actually, about what Judy is or who. I, he, I think it, it sounds to me like he is um, considering Judy as, as an individual. Who is Judy? Who is Judy? 
Um, and I think Philip Jeffrey's answer is like, uh, you already met Judy. Um, so mm-hmm. it doesn't imply that it, it's a person or, or if it's a metaphor for something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's actually, um, I don't know. I The more I think about it, the more I think that Bob has a lot more to do with it than Mr. C does. Um, like Mr. C doesn't seem to know who or what he's looking for or where he's trying to go. He's just simply motivated, motivated by his plan. And his plan is to find these coordinates and go, go where those coordinates will lead him. Um, but he doesn't seem to like Mr. C based on what he's asking Philip Jeffries doesn't seem to know or understand anything about Judy. And, um, the only thing that we get from Judy quote unquote Judy um, directly is that uh, Judy wants to be with Bob again. That's sort of the only, whether you believe that that was actually Judy uh, on the pretending to be Philip Jeffries way back in part two or three. um, But that's the only thing the show tells us. The show tells us that Judy and Bob are from the same origin or at least Bob originated from the mother um, experiment thing and that uh, we see in part eight that the woodsmen seem to be like um, they seem to be like shepherding Bob not really Mr. C Um, Mr. C is like a vehicle for Bob and we sort of you know we see this later in this episode where they extract Bob from Mr. C so Mr. C the more I I ponder and the more I've watched he seems almost like he is simply a pawn like a sort of an un uh like he's motivated by by bob but bob's motivations are not uh bob's motivations are singular and it could be that bob is trying to get back with judy the way judy is trying to uh get back with bob and or the mother experiment or whatever if you want to differentiate between the two but i get the sense that mr c uh it is more of a vehicle for Bob than we're shown. Like, I don't think that he has as much autonomy um, as, as it might seem just, just based on where he ends up. Mr. C against his will seemingly arrives at the twin peaks sheriff station. And he's a little confused by this, obviously. And he, sees Andy and Andy sees him and Andy is just overcome with joy um, that agent Cooper is back and you know, he wants to bring him inside to meet Frank Truman and all that. I don't know about you guys, but uh, my anxiety level during this whole sequence here was very, very high. Oh God. Like I like (laughs) when, when he shows up at the sheriff's station, I'm just thinking like, is this show going to end with him? Just like, mowing down everybody here like <laughs> exactly. Andy and Lucy and Frank. I, I, I actually think I said it out loud in one of my re- in, the, in the reaction video I said oh, please don't hurt Andy <laughs> can yeah. I just I, can I just uh, put an anecdote in here because when he is uh, arriving at, at the sheriff's station he's he's just what is this he says what is this and if you listen to uh, that exact line that he says what is this it is the exact same audio as when he says, what is this at, um, when he arrives at the, um, oh, this, the, 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 far, the, the farm, the, yeah. f- oh, the farmer, what, what's it called? 
the farm. The yeah. farm, yeah, the farm. What is this? Kindergarten? Um, that's the exact right. same audio, by the way, but that's just a uh, anecdote. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, one thing that I learned from the behind the scenes uh, footage here Shot. take a drink. <sighs> yep, take a drink. Uh, is that this scene right here of him approaching Andy, this is the very first scene that was shot with Mr. C, uh, Kyle McLaughlin as Mr. C. Hmm. Um, and I think, honestly, it shows a little bit because yeah. his hair and makeup situation is... Uh, it's a little weird. It's It's a little off, in my opinion. Like, it's... You can tell that they hadn't quite gotten it down yet. It's I don't know what it is. It's like his hair is a weird length. Like his makeup is a little strange. I don't know. He still uh, looks like Mr. You have to Mr. give him a break. He's just been in the <laughs> black, the white lodge cooped up and all smoky has, and stuff. No, I agree. I agree. Up. And yeah. this is also this is also one of the only times we see him just like in broad daylight too. Um, True, yeah. Like we don't really see him like just in the direct sun like this usually. So that could have something to do with it, but it just, it's not really relevant, but it just looked to me like they were still figuring out what to do with his hair and makeup. Cause I thought that he does look a little bit different here than he does, um, during other parts of the season. And when you know that this is the first scene that they shot and makes a certain amount of sense. I think so. you're right, actually. Yeah. It, his hair looks a little bit fuller, maybe mm. um, a little bit more shiny and yeah. his face looks and he also gives out he gives out a a smile that doesn't quite fit it could hmm. be acting in front of Andy of course like yeah hi Andy you know but it seems a little bit too uh, too loving that smile that he gives yeah his performance i think is also a little bit different here yeah that's um, what i noticed throughout these scenes like he seems a little bit more um I don't know how to describe it. He seems a little bit more sinister to me. Yeah. He's like, um, he's like where, super where, villain. Yeah, he has more of a flat affect throughout more of the season, throughout the rest of the season, rather. Mm. And it seems to me here like he's uh, he's like, oh, I'm a, I'm a bad guy now, aren't I? And like he has the bad teeth and everything. Did you guys notice his teeth before I did. this? Cause, well, this time. Because like, I didn't... I never, I never noticed um, prior to this episode that his teeth were all like brown and rotten are they before this because i I don't because i never i never noticed that they were but this is the first this is the first episode where i noticed that me too when he says in the flesh that's like the the one time i think i I noticed it yeah and when he says hello andy like i noticed his teeth then right i didn't but he's not showing up a lot of showing off a lot of teeth is he no i didn't notice that i have to watch that again actually yeah interesting interesting i think they were still uh i think they were still figuring things out with mr c and his whole look at this point you know i don't uh, think that kyle mclaughlin is 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 necessarily used to playing bad guys maybe so oh definitely not this is the first one he's ever played to my (laughs) knowledge yeah um so yeah he was just maybe maybe uh you know i'm not suggesting that he's bad in, in these sequence at all i think he's still great but he might just be still getting used to the skin of Mr. C, so to speak. So sure, it um, would take me a lot of time to get used to it. So I sure I can understand that. Sure, sure, yeah. So yeah, so Andy takes him inside and takes him to meet uh, Lucy, who's obviously very excited uh, to see him. 
doesn't seem to be anything strange to her about the fact that he looks like a complete creep. Uh, and also, uh, Frank Truman comes out to meet him. They shake hands. And uh, Mr. C follows Truman into his office. And Andy and Lucy sort of look at each other smiling for a while like, oh, isn't it great that, you know, Agent Cooper finally showed up after all of these years. And then Andy has a memory from his vision of the fireman, uh, which is of the future, of him and of him going to uh, to place Lucy at the doorway so that she can shoot Mr. C. Yeah. It's did like you, did very... you notice that beforehand, before he gets that flashback? Did you notice the fact that Lucy is wearing the same sweater i did not know that I made my that. heart like i i thought i was getting a heart attack i, was, I mean it's just <laughs> oh my god it's the same just as you said before yeah. that your your heart was racing when when you were like oh my god anxiety level you know thousand when he was mm-hmm. when mr c was arriving at the sheriff station and I, I, when they came inside and I saw Lewis's sweater, I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, you know, now everything will be, it will be a massacre, you know. Mm. But I was, I was just uh, completely drenched, you know, mm-hmm. watching that. Yeah. So. Yeah. This, this whole thing was just like, oh boy, it's yeah. so tense. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, as soon as Mr. C shows up here, Naido starts going nuts. Like Naido mm. is in the cell. She starts making her noises. She's kind of freaking out. She's, like, reaching around. She's obviously very upset um, by Mr. C's presence. And at this point, Chad takes his key out of his shoe and escapes from his prison cell. Um, Andy goes down, uh, and Chad points a gun at him. And uh, at this point, I'm thinking, like, great at first i was worried that andy was gonna get killed by mr c and now he's about to get killed by right. fucking chad <laughs> right don't like, touch my andy you bastard that was yeah well, it was like, my thought I, exactly, if, yeah. if my beloved andy uh dies at the hands of chad then uh yeah, i will I'll, never forgive I'll, you <laughs> then we know david lynch truly does hate us yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly uh but this is this is freddie's time to shine uh so he uh he punches his cell door open, which hits Chad uh, and knocks him down uh, long enough for him to be uh, incapacitated, I guess. Uh, so Freddy saves the day uh, in this instance, uh, just as he's about to again in a, in a few minutes here. Um, so at this point, Mr. C and Frank Truman are meeting with each other. Andy offers mr c some coffee which he declines that (laughs) was uh, i mean wasn't that wasn't that absolutely confirmation that like oh no yeah that's everyone in here right now should be questioning who is this guy yeah they andy should have shot him right then (laughs) and known that he was an imposter the worst Um, vibes imaginable no thanks (laughs) i'm all right yeah in relation yeah. to to Mr. Cooper, I mean Agent mm-hmm. Dale Cooper, it yeah. should be considered a crime to say no to coffee. Yes, exactly. Agreed. So, Mr. C and uh, Frank Truman have a very awkward little interaction here. 
um, where Frank Truman just has this look on his face like, what the, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> this weird, creepy long hair sitting in front of me that everybody <laughs> thinks is Agent Cooper. Uh, you know, he obviously is in on the fact that uh, at least that Hawk has a theory that there's two Coopers floating around. Um, you know, he, he saw the slip of paper that uh, Major Briggs left with, you know, Cooper, Cooper. So he's, he probably, you know, his sensors are probably going off at this point. Like, this doesn't seem like the Cooper that I've heard about. Right. I think, I think it's confirmed that he thinks this because he's saying Cooper, Cooper, Cooper. two yeah, times. Yeah, uh, right. Just yes. like yes. they were discussing just, just days ago, I guess, him and Hawk. Uh, two Coopers. Um, so I took that double Cooper pronunciation as as conf- confirmation that he was not sure of the situation and he was definitely on his guard. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at this moment, he gets a call from Lucy uh, saying that there's a call that he very urgently needs to take. He hears Cooper's voice on the other line, which stops him dead in his tracks. And, you know, Cooper says, you know, I'm on my way to Twin Peaks, is the coffee on? And Mr. C obviously has a sense of what has just happened here (laughs) because Mm -hmm. uh, he almost immediately reaches into his jacket, takes out his gun, does get a shot off on Frank, but he misses and apparently hits his hat because there's this ridiculously goofy effect it's so weird of uh Frank Truman's hat doing a little bounce yeah it's, <laughs> it's weird like a cartoon. It's some yeah a cartoon or a, a bad western or something <laughs> yeah 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 it's very funny i don't i don't know like uh, yeah it's it's very very silly um and uh yeah, so Mr. C goes to the ground, and at first we're thinking, oh, well, you know, Truman was able to uh, get a shot off on him, but he falls down, and behind him we see Lucy <laughs> holding the gun, which um, is, again, just an, an utter shock. One of many, many shocking moments in this. Um I don't know, just to see Lucy in this situation is very jarring because, like, pretty much every context in which we've seen her to this point in the season has been very low stakes. Right. You know, it's been, she's been largely played for laughs. You know, same with Andy. And it's just interesting in the way that, like, both she and Andy become major players in the way that all of this ultimately shakes out. It's kind of interesting. After the fact, I'm not that in that, you know, when I'm, th- I'm thinking about it after the fact, um, I'm not surprised considering, uh, I mean, Lucy is one thing, but considering Andy and his role in in, in season two uh, during the end of it, he's just staring and staring and staring at that, um, that the copy of, of the of the petroglyphs from mm-hmm. the owl cave mm-hmm. that they made and, and he's just staring at it and then he says something, like Andy says, and you laugh and you don't think about it. Does the 4-H club have something to do with this? Ha ha ha! But you know, this—it turns out to be something important. And that's, I think, um, um, 
a nod to the role that Andy can play sometimes, that he is maybe uh, unknowingly himself, but he is a bearer of of knowledge that comes in handy uh, when you least expect it. So I wasn't that surprised when it came to Andy that he was the one who was going to see the firemen to get all these clues. But, But Lucy, she was... Yeah, the fact that Lucy saved the day was a bit of... I was sharing. It was amazing. <laughs> I thought I think that it's, was there's kind of something, cool. There's something about Andy and Lucy where they're kind of like the only two characters I can think of that are like basically exactly the same as they were in the original run. You can make a case that Hawk is kind of uh, the same, but Hawk, Hawk in The Return is a bit more stoic um, than he was originally. And... There's something um, classic Twin Peaks about Andy and, and Lucy, and, and or in not even classic Twin Peaks in the with reference to the show, with reference to the town, the place, the geography of Twin Peaks. They sort of exemplify yeah. that that place that Agent Cooper fell in love with, where he says it's a place where you know people slow down for a yellow light instead of speed up. Uh, Andy and Lucy are kind of like the the poster children for that. And we are yeah. given that in doses in the return because like like Nick and I have often complained about their scenes are just these like over the top hokey um, just like song and dances of just like like why are we watching this? Why are we watching Lucy be confused about cell phones? Like why are we watching them argue about the color <laughs> of, a, of a chair? Like who cares? I understand cellular phones now. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> so like it um it makes sense to me thematically that in this sort of uh in this almost i wouldn't call it a false reality but almost in this like sort of non-starter of a resolution that uh you know in in the, like a true storybook good conquers evil sense they are kind of like the unsullied good characters that um like sim- i think the firemen it seems to be cuz uh, we can assume that or we can base, we can make an assumption based on what we've seen that Andy's like this whole thing is was the fireman's plan. The fireman gave Andy the vision of the future in which in which this happens. Um, and Andy is uh, sort of like I don't know if you call him like a blank slate or if he is you know purely uh, innocent in a, in a certain sense, so that he was able to receive that message without um, without judging it like. In the sense yeah. that, like Cooper, Cooper can receive messages, but he's going to interpret them in exactly. some kind of he's way. He's going to overwork yeah. the plans yeah. and stuff. Yes, Andy's yeah, not, and Lucy isn't, and also Freddie's not. Freddie is was another one who we don't really talk about as part of this plan, but he was obviously central to the whole plan. But what is he's just like a he doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing necessarily. I mean, he doesn't know why he's supposed to be doing it. He just knows he had a dream and that he's following through with it and that this glove itself is the proof. Uh, it, it works. So, um, I, in, like you're saying, Gisela, in retrospect, I, I see how it makes sense that Andy and Lucy get this task. Um, but the initial reaction to, to that, 
to seeing Mr. C fall and then Lucy standing there with the gun, it was totally jarring. Um, it even was, though we yeah. we got we got foreshadow of it, but I still didn't. Uh, I still reacted to it kind of with a, with half of a surprise and half of a, like hell yeah, Lucy, you go. That was fucking awesome. <laughs> hmm. I agree. Yeah. 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 So at this point. Uh, Andy starts to bring everybody from the jail up to this office here. Um, everybody except for the drunk man, mm-hmm. <laughs> notably, uh, which to me uh, suggests a theory um, that I kind of buy, which is that he doesn't really exist. He's like a, a figment of Chad's imag- imagination or some sort of some sort. Um, yeah, but can I just ask you what? Why do you think that he does this? Why do you think he brings it? He's, he's like, everyone must must go upstairs. But why? Uh, because he needs to bring Nido in. Sure. But is that right, to... a part of the plan? That I you... mean, apparently, because yeah, Diane okay. Diane becomes a part of the plan later, right? Sure. Like, right. She, um, I, I'm yeah. just curious what you think about this, because no one yes. told him to do that. He just, he just seems to... It's his instinct, maybe, almost. Like he's yeah. bringing mm. all of them up. Upstairs. Yeah, I don't. I don't know why everybody needed to come up, but uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, Naido seems to be uh, the key part of this plan here. So yeah, so everybody's up here, and the room starts to go dark again, and we immediately understand what's about to happen because we've seen it happen already in part eight, and that's that the woodsmen are going to show up and do their. I don't know, their ritual, whatever it is that they do to Mr. It's, C. It's shamanic, shamanic earth magic. Yeah. That's what I call uh-huh. it. They're just, they're doing this thing. They're rubbing blood all over his face and his chest. And um, this time, instead of Bob um, just sort of popping out briefly and going back into Mr. C's body, um, the Bob ball, as, as I'll call it, emerges from Mr. C and starts going nuts. Now, it's worth asking, like, why Why did he come out this time when he didn't come out the other time? And uh, my explanation for this is probably that um, this is this is the same moment that Cooper shows up. Exactly. Right. That's my thought. Seeing, yeah, and seeing Cooper probably sets him off, like, oh, shit. Like, this isn't good. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. Cooper's here for... Like Cooper is here for me. Like, yeah, this is because be I think ass. he's. You have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think his uh, Bob is is fixated on on Agent Cooper at first until Freddie says, um, "Yeah, hello, mm-hmm. it's my destiny," you know. Yeah, that, yeah, and I totally. He's... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Bob ball. He starts attacking Cooper, and at this point, I totally thought like, "Oh no, Bob is going to possess Cooper for real like, this time." Yeah. Yeah, like, that's what I was going to say. Like, we just dispatched with this doppelganger, and now, like, the real actual Cooper is going to have the Bob ball. And that's how that, that's how this season is going to end, with Cooper being possessed by Bob. That's really what I thought was about to happen. Uh, but no, what happens is <laughs> Cooper spots Freddy, apparently aware of the fireman's plan, and says, Are you Freddy? And Freddy's like, yeah. He's like, this is my destiny. And I actually, he's ha- like, that's white. 
And this me destiny. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I just Apologies. love his dialect. It's so it's best. Yeah. Apologies. I, I failed no, to get the accent okay. correct there. I just it's so funny when he uh, did you see just this, this is sidetracked again, but did did you see uh, the actor uh, he's got a YouTube uh, some kind of reel yeah. of all the dialects mm-hmm. that he does. And yeah. it's just he's so talented, it's fantastic. Yeah, that was how that was how David Lynch found out about yeah, it because he I mean, saw this it proves, video. It proves that something like that can land you in Twin Peaks. That's funny. Yeah. David Lynch apparently just loves this guy, uh, Jake Wardle, because uh I was watching an interview with him and he said that like he and David Lynch had had like a like an online correspondence because of this video, like years before Twin Peaks wow. ever happened. Like, David Lynch was just, like, a fanboy for this guy and all the accents he could do. And they would, like, talk on Skype and stuff like that. Wow. Like, years before Twin Peaks even happened. That's funny. Wow, yeah. that's cool. <laughs> it is. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty incredible. And then, he, um, and then he gets one of the key roles in, in the return. That's, yeah. Yeah, could you imagine, like, David Lynch just wants to be your friend and talk to you on Skype? It's pretty incredible. Um, I can't, but I wouldn't mind, you know. If he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm up yeah, for a season four. Let's amazing. just say that if you want to. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I'm also available. David Lynch, okay. if you're listening. I think most we're of us all, are. <laughs> yeah. we're, all, we're all game. Yep. Um, so, yeah. So, boy, where to start with this? So, Freddie has this quote-unquote fight with the bomb ball. And on paper, this is all pretty absurd and ridiculous. But because David Lynch is just such a capable filmmaker, he makes the scene actually pretty terrifying. Like, we get that first-person point-of-view shot from the Bob Ball. Yeah. That's just, like, going back and forth and, you know, accosting Freddy. And the sound that's playing, just this blaring, cacophonous, staticky sound with, like, Bob making his his noises where he's, like, screaming at Freddy and we hear him say he's his... growling you know, okay. and... Yeah, he's like growling, and he says, I'll, "He says his his, uh, his catchphrase from the European pilot, i 'I'll catch you with my death bag.'" Yeah, yep. um, that was awesome. Which I thought was yeah, which I thought was pretty clever. Um, but yeah, this this scene, I feel like, even though it is a little bit, even though it is a little bit goofy as it is, I feel like in less capable hands, it could have been a lot worse. You know what I mean? Like, it's it actually manages to be pretty pretty intense and frightening. I was, I, like. I was, I, I, I had trouble breathing physically, <laughs> literally. Yeah. I was so on my, on the edge of my seat during that because, I, and also, I, I mean, I agree with you. It could be horrendous to see it, but in the wrong hands, as you said, but I, th- I actually think it was kind of, wow, you know, because they took all of the faces and, and little snippets of video that they had with Frank Silva who's been dead for more than 20 years and they put together this horrifying you know terrible you know fight between him and 
and an actor that is actually alive and could be directed you know right i i i I think they did it very it looks very good i think yeah i think if you took this as like a whatever four or five minute short film just in terms of like what it looks like it's so cool like it, it yeah there's all the this like spliced shots of cooper where uh you'll get one of them direct and then one of them sort of like from like a lower perspective looking up with this white with this like shining light behind him like and it, it, the way it alternates between perspectives kind of uh uh very abruptly and the way it, it the camera uh, is not still for really any part of this whole thing um but just as like a a feat of filmmaking this little fight scene here does manage to be um it's just it's so exceptionally well done and it manages to be um like just in terms of how fight scenes go it really does build attention this scene is very divisive even amongst people who like the show generally not everybody was happy about the anti-climax that this represents i suppose and you know let's be honest it is it is pretty ridiculous yeah, what happens here. Totally yeah, absurd. Yeah, the, the absurdity of, of Freddy, this character that we don't really know at all, that we've only really had like a couple of scenes with, just comes in and magically dispatches with Bob with his green glove. I know that it's always kind of a dubious position to say with regards to art, like, oh, well, it's it's supposed to be bad. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But like <laughs> right. in in this in this case, it's such an outrageous, absurd day of sex machina. Like it is just so it is just so far beyond uh absurdity that there has to be a reason for it. Like there has to like Lynch and Frost aren't stupid. They know that we're gonna see this and say, like, that was it. That's all it took to kill sure, Bob. Of course, yeah. You know? Yeah, and so, like, there has to be a purpose for it. And, you know, you could inject uh, some of the, some of these ideas, uh, you know, critiquing superhero culture, perhaps, or, you know, this idea of tidy resolutions and whatnot, and I think that's all, that's all totally valid. But you're, you're right, Gisela, I think that this really is just setting us up for a, uh, a pretty profound fall. Yeah. And this is really just the first part of it because immediately after all this and Bob is punched and he is turned to bits and all the shards float up into the ceiling, uh, Cooper goes to Frank almost immediately and asks for the uh, the room key, the room 315 key from Frank. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, of course we get we get the great line from uh from rodney mitchum who says oh well that's one for the grandkids yeah <laughs> just break just br- I, I appreciate that just breaking the tension a exactly bit. yeah palate you cleanser know? like we've just seen something incredibly intense and it's like okay that was weird you know? <laughs> um so yeah so uh, cooper he puts the owl cave ring on mr c mr c's body disappears he takes the room 315 key from frank and it's at this point that pretty much like like everybody and their mother shows up to this room. Like Bobby shows up, 
Cooper, Albert, Tammy, Candy, Mandy, and Sandy, they're all there. And it has this very, like, Wizard of Oz quality, you know? Like, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there. And they're all just sort of standing around very awkwardly. Yes. You know, it's, it's this moment that should feel triumphant because, you know, the ultimate baddie of Twin Peaks, Bob, has just been vanquished and... You know, Mr. C is dead and Cooper is back in Twin Peaks. And yet it has this very stilted, very unreal quality to it. Especially since when Gordon shows up, um, Cooper just referenced him. And then he says, who is here right on time? And everything is just perfect. And it's like a play. It's like the finale of this last scene of of a drama of a mm-hmm. play, like a chamber play or something. Everyone is just lined up to, in five minutes, we're going to get the, the applause from the, from the, from the audience. And, and that's why I don't, I feel it's, it's, it's not, it's so mm-hmm. crazy, absurdly tying all of the knots together. And it's, we, we as, as viewers, we know that, no, 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 wait a minute. We have more than one part left, and and even if we don't know that, it gives us a feeling of what you know. Mm-hmm. This is really not, as I said, something is wrong here. You know, we can just feel yeah. it. It's too cheesy. I think I said cheesy when I described it first time. Yes, it's too yes. perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And at this point, Cooper sees Naido, and. As soon as he sees her, we get this superimposed face over the entirety of the action. Now, this whole device here with the face, to me, is one of the most brilliant things (laughs) in the entire return. It is just, it is such a simple but effective way of distancing us from the reality of everything that is happening here. Mm -hmm. Like, it is just such a, um, such an odd effect. And I think it's notable that the only times that we see this face disappear is when we're focused on Diane, right? Right. Like, um, we see the face and then it disappears as Diane's face emerges from Nido. Uh, and then it disappears again when um, I believe it's when they kiss. Yes. Right. Yeah. It I actually so. doesn't. It doesn't totally disappear on Diane's face. I, I watched this a couple times mm-hmm. this morning. It very, very. It's very faintly there. You can just make out like his ear and his eyes, and then it disappears completely when they kiss. Yeah. Which was I just yeah. Was I, I just think it's fa- I just think it's fascinating that the superimposition happens over everything except for Diane, who is going to be the only person to accompany Cooper on this insane, you know, cosmic journey that they're about to go off on. I just, I find that to be very notable that she's, that she's the person who doesn't get this sort of, um, this surrealistic touch applied to her. Right. I, I think, I think it's worth pointing out. Cooper here tells Bobby that, his father, Major Briggs, was well aware of what is going on here. 
um, and that information that Briggs had gathered brought them together with Gordon. And considering what we heard from Gordon earlier in the in this episode, I think we we generally know what he's probably talking about, right? Yeah, with this hunt for Judy and all on all these this sorts of things. So, yeah, this face, the superimposition here. It's really, really important. It's it's almost difficult to talk about because it's such a um, it's such a it's such a simple yet complex gesture. It's like, um, on one level, it's just a face, and it's just kind of an interesting compositional detail. You know, when we see like Cooper within Cooper, and you know the red room within Cooper's head, and Diane within Cooper's head, it just like. It just brings to mind all sorts of you know, intuitive, intuitively based connotations, but also I think what it's meant to signal to us ultimately is that what's happening here, this tidy resolution with Bob being killed and all our favorite characters suddenly showing up and Mr. C being dead and, oh, well, would you look at that, Diane and Cooper are reunited and they're having this really romantic moment. It's just like a giant red flag to us that not only is this not happening, but it cannot be happening. Like right. it is, it is not, it is not what we're seeing is not in the realm of reality. And we are seeing Cooper in some sense, observing all of this from somewhere beyond the narrative. And not, on, not only that, um, I think he is looking straight into the camera, which breaks the fourth wall in some sense. Yes. Which right. is also another layer of red flaggery. <laughs> you know, he is um, basically telling us directly uh, through the character, of course, that this is something else going on here. This is something that you you shouldn't trust what you're seeing right now. Yeah, I, f- yeah, I find it 100%. notable that it the superimposition is of a moment. You know, it's like Cooper sees Nido, and then we get the shot of him seeing Nido, uh, and then that is what lingers. So I, I agree with everything you guys are saying, that this is uh, meant to symbolize the... Um, uh, the I don't know, not realness of what we're seeing, if, if, if to put it uneloquently. But um, I, I wonder if this is somewhat of a um, if we're seeing two things happening at once. You know, I mean, if that was another point at which uh, something like the timelines split, and um, because the superimposed face is silent. Um, throughout most of this until it says in slow motion, we live inside a dream. So I don't know if that's meant to be um, interpreted as like, if you go back in time, um, an alternate version of this scene just has Cooper witnessing Nido staring at her and saying, we live inside a dream. Um, but uh, I, it was such a brilliant uh, indicator that something was amiss is like staring into the uncanny valley. It's like none of this at all seems, um, seems right or feels right. And this lingering 
face, this lingering um, shot of something that we have just seen at a really significant moment. Like, um, I, I'm sure I'm not. I'm sure we're all in the same boat. Not totally sure about what to make of Diane um, or what to make of Nido Diane or what to make of um, her role in in the the curtain call, so to speak. But um, I definitely agree with the idea that there is some fourth wall breaking here and that's consistent with what we've seen of the fireman um, and how his whole his whole like apparatus is a basically a movie theater and that the red room is you yeah. know a, cur- it's, it's a or, you know, stage yeah and so is the red room it's a theatrical curtain that we see lifted at a certain point um, yes that's right and so there's um it's almost like there is this veil of um you know that we refer to as the fourth wall and th- we are hinted at it being a veil and that we have that veil sort of shattered by this superimposed face um that just sort of the character is staring back at you and it's it's like so consistent with what twin peaks is it's like um you know in a in a traditional sense the viewer is meant to watch the show and ask questions about it and be like oh i wonder who killed laura palmer i wonder who did this and who did that or what this means um and it's like for for the first time literally it seems like the show is actually staring back at you and asking you something like who is this character who is that man there you know um who do you think that is there or whatever it is like you you get this um like it's such a it's such a um it's such an interesting touch to add to something that even if it wasn't there, I think we would all have the same feelings about this scene that it feels very wizard of Oz, uh, Mm -hmm. kind of like this sort of like fake out wrap up, but then to add this, um, this element, uh, I think the only other time we see a character's face superimposed is Ray Monroe's when he is watching Mr. C, uh, in the ritual in part eight, um, and yeah. I interpreted that to be like we are seeing him and we're seeing what he is seeing. Um, and that would lend itself to the idea that this, you know, we're, we're seeing Cooper watch this moment from like Nick, like you said, outside the narrative. Um, and I think it's really interesting that afterwards when we get through with all this stuff, um, we only see Cooper uh, surrounded by total blackness until he arrives at the Dutchman's when he's walking with, with Gordon and Diane. And then when he meets Mike, there's just complete blackness. Um, and it's seemingly like telling us this is completely outside of all of the stuff that we've seen. Um, so, well, yeah, in my, I, I have my take on it is, and has been, I think pretty much since, well, since it aired or maybe since I, since I saw part 18 because it ends with well you know Laura Palmer whispering in his ear and that I think it's a similar shot that we see of him or his face uh, as we see here the superimposed face which makes me think that this is happening well like (laughs) let's say like let's say that part 17 or parts of this part 17 especially the the scenes at the fire sorry at this at the sheriff station that we see here 
is some kind of a wishful thinking that Cooper is mm. is doing after the fact because we know that he ends up in the Black Lodge it seems like he might be locked in the Black Lodge again maybe we don't know for sure of course but I see it as Cooper reliving what happened but adding de- details to make it better like a wishful thinking and I oh you know if I if someone says something stupid or mean to you and you, and you just flabbergasted and you don't know what to say then after the fact and oh I should have said this and I should have thought that and I could have done this you know a little bit like that that he is adding de- details to to the so to see so to speak official story or the unofficial story of of what happened and and that could be the explanation for for that we see the sheriff station all this all the things that happens there that we that we all all of us all of the three of us uh, uh, we find odd or or out of place or something's not right and it could be because cooper is imagining what he would have liked to have happened that could mm-hmm. be something I don't that, that's that's the thought that lingers with me and I can't shake it not at least not until I find a better one <laughs> to replace it <laughs> yeah it's fascinating um I, I do like the idea that this is sort of like him still trapped in the red room you know because we will see in the next episode that in a seemingly different reality, he emerges from the curtains once again onto Glastonbury Grove. And I do like the idea that he's sort of, um, you know, just sort of in contemplation this with this thousand yard haunted stare about what could have been and, you know, dreading what he know what he knows he has to do, which is in a lot of ways, a, a real violation of who he is as a person. Mm-hmm. You know, he's about to, He's about to use two different women as pawns in this greater plan uh, while, while really putting them through various stages of trauma, uh, you know, sort of making Diane relive her rape in a certain way and bringing Laura back to the scene of her abuse. I just, um, yeah, it's just... It's so, it's so rich. Uh, we we could talk about it forever, but um, <laughs> yeah. So, like you mentioned, at this point, we see the clock. It's two fifty three, and the entire room goes black. And next thing we see is that absolutely iconic shot of Cooper and Diane and Gordon, you know, walking side by side towards the camera in the complete darkness and they show up surprisingly <laughs> in what apparently is the basement of the great northern where cooper uses his room key his 315 room key that he just got from frank to open this door and within this door is the source of the hum that we have heard throughout and he says goodbye to Diane and Gordon. He opens the door. He he steps a foot inside and he turns around and he looks directly at Diane and he says, see you with the curtain call. Great. Great stuff. Unbelievable, yeah. Yeah. 
just a holy i'm just gonna say every single moment from this episode from here on out is just like holy fucking shit <laughs> it's so <laughs> it's so good oh with my sugar God. on top yeah yeah oh my it really goodness it gracious. really does like for whatever this show does to you for like the first 16 episodes or maybe the first 15 where it is so uh like withholding to be thrust into this space now this complete blackness to see that that shot of cooper diane and gordon walking down and then just the drama of all of this it had me on cloud nine because like you're not only does it not only is it awesome in and of itself like not only is it interesting and compelling um you you at least i felt like as the viewer that i earned this I, I I have waded through uh, a seemingly endless stream of um, of narratives that confused me just to get to this the, these moments right here where um, your things things are coming together, uh, but in, in a way that is so outside of my personal expectations that I was just thrilled. I was like, uh, I, I couldn't have been happier. I don't think watching these scenes and like finally getting to see what what these iconic characters are doing and there's a real um there's a real thrill in not knowing for me like there is like something really cool about the fact that these are very evocative characters that have been somewhat elusive to us and now we are actually getting to see what the hell they were up to and it it's like it's such a it's such a treat and um i i'm just grateful for it because at the end of the day like i i watch this show because i love it and i love it for moments like this that really make you make me go outside myself as as the viewer and and relinquish uh relinquish my like my stranglehold on the narrative like okay if i can just like understand these few pieces then this whole thing might make sense it's really liberating for me to just let go of all that and see these these extremely um challenging characters in a black room um walking towards the unknown and we're given you know we have snippets you know we've seen this we've seen the the boiler room area before we've seen the the 315 key before um but just we to... heard the sound as well we have heard it yep the hum right also also when 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 uh, it was it was um it was present when when agent cooper finally woke up from the coma true mm-hmm. mike meets with cooper here they both sort of emerge from the darkness which again i love just cinematically both of them just stepping forth from just this complete and utter void. And Mike recites the fire walk with me poem, which not backwards. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Chills. Chills. I love that. Yeah, exactly. I was, um, it's so, it's so wonderfully dramatic. And we've, we've just, we've got that hum is like really, really loud now Mm -hmm. on the, on the score. And it just, it just feels like we're about to step into just a whole other, realm of of existence here um so yeah basically what they do is that they follow an almost identical trajectory uh to mr c as he walks through the dutchman's we get 
an identical shot of them walking down this long hallway with the uh, the forest uh, superimposed. And we also get another shot of the jumping man, just as we did before. And it just made me think about what we talked about, Dylan, on our Part 15 episode. Um, this question that is posed to Mr. C by Jeffries saying, oh, you are Cooper. You know, it it's to see Cooper take literally the exact same path that we just saw Mr. C mm-hmm. here really just raises these questions again about... Um, you know, the division between Cooper and Mr. C and how much Mr. C is there in Cooper and vice versa. And those types of questions are only going to be explored in greater detail in, you know, the, the, the moments to come here, particularly in the finale. Yeah. And also, uh, also the one fact that I, I think it's, is interesting to, to notice is the fact that when Mr. C went down down the same or the similar or you know corridor, um, he had he had um, a, a woodsman beside him, like guiding yeah. him to where mm-hmm. he was supposed to go. But uh, but Cooper has Mike, or as he is actually credited, Philip Gerard, which is interesting in in itself. I think that he is yeah. credited as the vessel, the shoe salesman. Uh, I don't know if you've discussed this already at some point, but I think that's also pretty interesting. But instead of the shoot, it's it's like it's the same place, but it's it's there are different contexts and and relations within that place Mm -hmm. for them. Almost, it's like depending on who is entering that place, the Dutchmans or whatever. Yeah. Mm Hmm. So yeah, Mike leads Cooper through this path, like you mentioned, and they walk through the courtyard, which, as we know, is the same courtyard from Firewalk With Me, um, this this motel uh, location that uh, we see Leland at, where he almost uh, has a sexual encounter with, with his daughter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do, they do exit the courtyard on different... Uh, spots. Did you notice that? Is that right? Mm-hmm. No, I didn't notice that. Yeah, I wrote. I wrote about that too when I wrote an article um, that was called uh, "The Motels of Twin Peaks" or something. Uh, I noticed that when they exit the, so to speak, room above the convenience store or the picture from the the wall of Flora Palmas, you know, the the flower, mm-hmm. the flower wallpaper yeah. space. When they exit to go outside to the courtyard to to visit Philip Jeffries, not only are they, and when I say they, I, I of course reference uh, first there's Mr. C with the woodsman, and the second time here in part 17 there's uh, the Cooper with Mike or Philip Gerard. Um, the first time they exit a little bit more to the left and they go straight down to. Uh, room number eight, where they meet the Bosomi lady, that weird, strange, mm, yeah. back-talking uh, character that we see there. And when when Mister C at that point meets uh, Jeffries, I, I I get a feeling that he's not in the same room as as Jeffries. He's seeing him, visualizing him through the wall in some kind of way. You know, huh. the wall is opening up almost. 
Right. Yeah. yeah. I never really paid much attention to that until this most recent rewatch, but you're right. Mr. C, he enters that room and then it's like there's a weird effect where it almost it looks like the wall yeah. sort of opens up. It slides up. from one side yeah. to the other. Yeah. It it does. And Yeah, and it not, is very it's very curious. And not yeah. only that, it stays superimposed more or less during their conversation as Cooper and and Mike enters the courtyard. Not only are they entering at a slightly different angle, but they don't walk to uh, room eight. They take a straight right and go through a small corridor, and that's the hmm. same. That's that <laughs> that that is the same small narrow corridor as where Leland enters in Firewalk with Me. And he oh. he then turns to his right, and he uh, he is facing the room where uh, Ronette and Laura is seated on the bed. So that's the, right. that's the corridor where Cooper and and Mike is is going uh, through the uh, to the other side, and then they turn left again, and they actually enter the. As it seems to me, in, in any way, the the same room as Philip Jeffries. There are no no wall opening. There is nothing right. superimposed. As for, in my opinion, it looks like they actually get to meet him in person or in <laughs> in machine or how do you say you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so in my opinion, it, I don't have an answer to why this is, but I think it's pretty interesting to see that. Oh, actually, Mister C is not actually in the same room as Mr. as uh, Jeffries he's like seeing him as a projectory on the wall or beneath the wall in some way and Mr. C, Mr. C is is uh, led there by the, the fire but by the woodsman so I, I'm not sure what's happening there actually but if you if you look closely and you compare the two you can see pretty clearly that not only are they taking different paths to the place where they meet Jeffries, but also they seem to end up in different rooms and they mm. exit at different s- spots at the, at the courtyard it's pretty it might be it might mean nothing it might be just me spending hours and hours writing about this but i i i have to say it fine i find it quite interesting and yeah it's something to think about maybe yeah, no, I never really. I definitely noticed the uh, the wall that you described um, that opens up for Mister C, uh, but I never really took note of the fact that Cooper and Mike don't don't experience the same thing. Um, yeah, that is kind of interesting. The idea that Mister C isn't actually taking direct audience with with Philip Jeffries, um, but yeah. So uh, regardless, Cooper shows up here in front of Jeffries, he and Mike, and Cooper immediately asks for February 23rd, 1989, which, as we know, is the night of Laura's murder. And Jeffries says some pretty interesting things here. He says, it's slippery in here. Say hello to Gordon if you see him. He'll remember the unofficial version. And he also says, this is where you'll find Judy. Um, and also, I think he inter- says something interesting about there might be someone 
did you ask me this yes. or something? Yeah, yeah. Maybe I was about to mention that. Yeah. That's exactly what he says. He says, he says there may be someone, yeah. and then it's like a pause, and then he says, "Did you ask me this?" It's like he's and it's just something. Or something. Yeah, yeah, it's just yeah, exactly. It's something that we've talked about a lot, which is that yeah. Jeffrey's, uh, in in our opinion, is not really not really reliable. He's not of a sound mind. He's sort of stuck somewhere between space and time. Like he's not. Uh, he's not really physically there, um, and he's not really mentally there. He he exists in some sort of nether realm that we don't quite understand. Uh, at least that's the way I read it. Because yeah, me too. It really it really seems like he's getting his um he's getting his Cooper and his Mister C mixed up, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. I think so. And also, if you watch if you watch Firewalk with me, it seems like it's really traumatic to to travel between space and time in the way that he does uh, if i mean you, you you don't really get to see the scenes when when he exits if you don't see the missing pieces of course uh, but right. when he exits this um weird transaction that he ma- that he makes to philadelphia when he exits it exit it, uh, it uh, it's in um in Buenos Aires, Aires. Right. yeah, that's right. And he's screaming and bleeding and and he's smoking and it's sooty behind him and stuff. It, it seems really traumatic, and it wouldn't be weird to assume that if you're stuck in time and space, like I also think he is, it would be uh, confusing in many ways. Yeah, and and I think mm-hmm. Cooper or a lot of characters in this episode keep referencing memory. Um, yeah. You know, Philip Jeffrey says it at the end of this, like Cooper, remember Cooper asks Diane, do you remember? Um, So memory is, is massive. And it seems like Cooper himself doesn't realize a lot of things until he is given some sort of visual cue. Um, Like he, he seemingly doesn't like he, he, I'm sure he sees Nido before, or maybe doesn't recognize her in the room, but as soon as he, looks at her that's when he makes this expression of realization like he remembers something and that triggers this whole superimposition thing so it seems as if it's it's you know characters who end up in this state often have issues with their memory so it would be consistent with that that philip jeffries um the entity uh if he's simply relying on memory is going to be confused because he he has interacted with Cooper before on some level, um, and mm-hmm. like he's saying, you know, he is his memory is certainly not linear like ours would be. Like I can remember, no, yeah. I remember this and I remember that, and I know that one happened after the other. So for for these characters like uh, like Philip Jeffries and like Cooper, because as we keep seeing, so much of what he's doing is. Um, based on his ability to remember things yeah and, and also his... when he met uh, sorry go ahead no go ahead no i was thinking when you said that i was thinking about also when when he met mr c the first time at the dutchman's uh it seems like it seems to me that that philip jeffries almost wanted to test uh, Mr. C to see if it's Cooper are you are you really Cooper you know so he was asking something and and Cooper was the uh, sorry Mr. C was was then able to because the, the doppelganger like inherited the memories yep. from the host and right. he was 
he was then able to to uh, reference the the incident in Philadelphia, and then you mm. say then he said like you are Cooper like okay I no, now I know that you are Cooper but then it seems when he see when he is meeting in part seventeen Mister C, <laughs> sorry I get the mix up, I'm I'm having troubling trouble remembering who's who <laughs> but you know uh, when he is meeting Cooper in part seventeen, it's like he's confused. Did I really meet him, or was that something else, or whatever? So he is the memory is really mixed up for for a lot of characters, uh, and also as I mentioned before with with Tammy, uh, when she when we can when we read about the memories that Tammy has from from the sheriff station, she obviously get this mixed up as well. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, everybody, pretty much everybody at this point in the show is operating at some level of confusion or another. Uh, Including the viewers. <laughs> yes. Cooper thinks he has a handle on what's going on, but uh, as we learn, he probably does not. Um, so, yeah, Cooper, he asks for the night of Laura's murder. At which point, Jeffries spouts the owl cave symbol. Uh, out of steam which then transforms into an infinity symbol and what we see is a black dot appear on the symbol and then sort of move throughout it almost as if he is like (laughs) i don't know sort of navigating the sort of navigating some uh some time loop here Mm -hmm. Uh, to get to the exact right date. I don't know. What do you guys think about this whole infinity thing? I I was initially wicked confused by it, but I think I actually have a kind of a handle on it now. So it starts with the, well, obviously starts with the, with the owl cave symbol and then turns into the eight or the infinity symbol. But then once the black dot appears, um, it, I believe it moves over from the right side to the left side. And then the, uh, but it's in like the same position, just like a mirror image. Then it um, flips over. Oh, I'm sorry. It flips first, putting it on the other side, and then it moves over back to its original position. And to me, I was reading that as if like it's like a back door now. You know what I mean? It's like you like you've since you have reversed this like image and then moved it back over. It is like you're en- like you're entering into this part from from the past if at least that's how that's sort of how i looked at it and based on what actually happens um he he does enter into that um he like enters into that timeline and uh interacts with it which changes it fundamentally um but i think that might be the significance of the black and white too that he is sort of entering into it from this other side uh and once he once he interacts with that side, it totally changes. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, the object, the uh, the dot, it uh, it stops on the infinity symbol here. Uh, at which point, Mike says electricity, and Cooper is transported back into Firewalk with me. Oh my god. This was. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's all I have to say. I I don't know. I was just. Uh, yeah. When that happened, I, I, was... I was. I. 
I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, you know? I think based on your reaction video, I think you were kind of just like, as soon as you realized what was happening, <laughs> you were just kind of like speechless. Yes, and that's, I mean, I speak a lot, so that's, that's, <laughs> I talk all the time, so. Yeah. Then you might, it might get a, get, get you a hint of, of, of what it meant in my mind right then and there, so yeah. But that was just yeah. amazing because it was like, what? the hell is going on you know i don't think that anyone yeah. could see that coming maybe someone but i was no, just a definitely big, not big in this way definitely not them literally inserting cooper into firewalk with no me. yeah i mean yeah, right how insane is that i mean my once i realized what was happening uh here i first of all i immediately thought he's gonna try to save her like just like why else would he come back, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and and once all these puzzle pieces started to align in my mind, it was like, I don't know. I just I transcended to another plane of existence. I just like it was like out of body. Like I just couldn't believe what was happening. It was just so ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, in 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 the best possible way. To me, once once Laura sees Cooper and she screams. Uh, holy shit, man! Because because that happened. Yeah. She 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 just looks off beyond James and fire walk with me and screams. Um, and you yeah. are left with that. You know what I mean? In the moment, as just like, well, this is just Laura acting erratically. And I thought that that was just brilliant. How that that recontextualizes everything. Um, and um, I, I think it's actually kind of fascinating that uh, maybe we're to believe that. Um, Cooper did this already, you know, um, he did it one time and then through one way or another, he didn't save Lara because if she, you know, just judging by like in fire walk with me where the ending happens completely differently than it does in part 17, she still has that reaction. So we can assume that she still saw Cooper, this guy from her dream. Um, but it, he didn't, uh, interact with with her for whatever reason on this timeline. And that's what has led to, that's what led to her, her death. Um, but the, not only the, the decision to do that, but the insertion of, uh, this character, this different Cooper, um, than the one we understand, um, at, or the one we understood from the original run in fire walk with me, inserting that character into fire walk with me, in a way that is consistent with the original um, film was just so masterful. So like such a, uh, there are a lot of things in this, in this season that made my jaw drop, but um, I don't know. I geek out about that kind of stuff. Like I really like, um, yeah, <laughs> I really like when, when stuff like that happens, you know what I mean? When it happens well, and this just totally spellbound me. I couldn't, I, uh... If this was a podcast in Swedish, I could probably try to tell you what I thought about it, but I'm I don't I'm not sure that I could describe <laughs> it in any you know human language other th- with words other mm-hmm. than guttural screams and stuff like that. But it was the most clever just wow. When I saw that, I I'm not sure do do they have any idea what they do to us seriously because 
for me, as I told you uh, in the beginning of this, um, I told you that I, I started off watching Firewalk With Me and I've seen it maybe like 80 times or something. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just guessing. But, but um, to, to then see something new and new material coming out and, and in this new material, she is screaming because of Cooper. I mean, do they know what they can potentially do to us? <laughs> because if, if they did... I mean, it's masterful. It's really, wow. It's one of the most yeah. amazing things that I saw during the whole of run of, of the return. I don't have words for it. Like, yeah, what it's, I felt. It's one of the... It's one of the most incredible things I've I think I've ever seen. To be honest, yes. I know we're just I know we're just going off on a very hyperbolic tangent here, but I really want to insist. Like, this is such a bold, outrageous move, and as we've discussed, Dylan, you know, throughout the season, the way in which this season continually referenced and enriched Firewalk with me is, I think, one of its most unique legacies. The fact that it was able to take this film from 25 years prior that everybody hated at the time uh, and just imbue it with all of this significance that it didn't really have before. I mean, it was always a great film and the way that it humanizes Laura Palmer was always very um, was always very moving, etc. But just for it to have this little bit of meat on the bone is just really remarkable. I, I can't think of anything else like it. Me neither. And I actually feel more sorry sorry for the people who who watched the return for the first time without having seen uh, Firewalk with me than for myself watching Firewalk with me first <laughs> of everything that I saw. Uh, so that's always a bonus, right? It's impossible for me to imagine what this show would play like to somebody who who not only had seen the original run and Firewalk with me, but like wasn't like intimately familiar with them. Like, cause the show is just so, it just plums the mythology so thoroughly. And it's just like, Oh man, it, it's very, um, it's very inaccessible in a lot of ways to outsiders, but for those of us on the inside, it is just endlessly rewarding. And I, I love that about well, I, it. I have a, I have a friend that, that, didn't watch firework with me and and uh, she she actually liked the return a lot and she wanted to discuss it with me and um it turned I, I i realized that she didn't watch firework with me so she was i was like you say you you like this but you actually missed like so much <laughs> you really have why why did you oh i was almost upset you know uh, and she said, mm. no, I saw I didn't get a lot of, you know, good reviews and stuff. Oh, what the hell are you talking about? You have to see it. And I was almost <laughs> angry with her, you know. So you don't. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Did she know Did she know that James was uh, the same guy who showed up in the roadhouse singing that song on stage? <laughs> um, I mean, I'm not sure. A lot of things just <laughs> went over her head and she still liked the return, which is pr impressive. Yeah. But. I, I pretty much I pretty much forced her. Um, I had like thoughts of of 
of doing like the, in the Clockwork Orange, like putting her and strapping her to her seat, <laughs> and put, <laughs> forcing her eyes open. See, I I will do that to you if yeah. you don't watch it voluntarily. But I didn't. Of I course, mean. But. I was very, very upset. If you're in for if you're in for 18 hours of the return, yeah. like take take the two hours yeah, exactly. and watch Fire to Walk with yeah, me. Exactly. You know what yeah. I mean? So, like, it's just it's it's necessary. But I felt really hor- um, horrible because of the level of angriness that I felt. Uh, <laughs> and it, I think it tells me more. It tells it tells everyone more more about me than about her. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that is pretty funny. Um, so yeah, the other thing that I really love about this is the fact that it's in black and white and that the music has been removed. Mm-hmm. These scenes here with Laura and James just have a totally different feeling without color and without music. It's like it's almost like a it's like a memory, right? Where it's like you're recalling these things that happened but because of like the fog of of time it's like the the events just have a totally different quality to them you know what i'm saying it's really fascinating yeah Yeah. it it almost leaves you um with that uncanny valley feeling of like this is like 99.5 percent what i remember and then there's something just a little off of about it and i think it's it's also a great move to um like i think it's you can contrast it with when you see the pilot uh, like recapitulated later on and that I do believe has the music to it um, and it has that that had a little bit more of like a fourth wall breaking thing to me where you know you see Josie in the mirror and you see Pete go fishing and it had that one was more of like you know this is the changing of this show whereas Cooper going yeah. back like no he was actually just going back to the events that we the viewer had depicted to us in fire walk with me, but this isn't fire walk with me. This is February 23rd, 1989 um, through this, through yes. this, um, this lens of like you said, like a memory, almost like Cooper's Cooper's memory, which is very fascinating because he wasn't supposed to be there, but apparently he was the whole time. Um, just, yeah, just it works on in so many levels. So yeah, the scene basically plays out exactly the same way it does in Firewalk with me, including interestingly to me, Laura's line here where she says, Bobby killed a guy. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just um you know, they could have edited this however they wanted to, but it's just it's just I don't know. There's something about the fact that they chose to leave that in there, like that reminder that hey bobby the guy that you just saw at the sheriff's station this upstanding young man etc it's like it's like we still remember what happened Mm -hmm. here yeah uh yeah yeah it's interesting that they put it in because if you think about what i said a long time ago with you have to assume that everything is how it's supposed to be because they had they could do whatever they wanted. Um, yeah. And they put that in, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, because all this stuff isn't really relevant. Like, her, you know, flipping James the bird and all that sort of... Like, even Donna doesn't know me, all that sort of stuff. It's not really relevant. They didn't have to include all of that, but I, I appreciate the fact that they did. Um, so, yeah, as we know, Laura 
she rides off with James, and then she gets off his bike, and uh, she runs off into the woods by herself, and James drives off. Now, we get this shot that really took me by surprise, which is of uh, Leo with Jacques Renault mm-hmm. and Ronette just sort of sitting by waiting for Laura to show up. Uh, just to see Leo's face in this moment was so jarring. I know. I, could, you know I couldn't I mean? believe it. I was like, wait, I had to actually rewind it. I was like, wait, that was Leo. That was Leo and Ronette. <laughs> yeah, and this this shot I don't think actually exists before. I don't remember it? it. Like, I don't think it's yeah, in it does, the movie. But it, it's, it does? It's a short, short, short... It's not a. It feels much longer in part seventeen, but in Firewalk with Me, it's. I think it's it's basically Laura Palmer crawling or walking, crawling out of the woods after after being not dropped off by James, but more or less throwing herself off the bike, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. she walks through the forest to to the cabin, and. Mm-hmm. That's where you can see that scene, but it's really short. So now it's, it feels much longer at this time. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I don't think, like, I just don't remember, I don't remember, like, us really having this moment of them just all standing there together waiting in this way. Like, no, because it just seemed a little... I think it's because in Fire Walk With Me, you don't get the sense that they're waiting it's just a meetup, you know? So right. it feels much longer. Maybe they had more material and they put it mm-hmm. more put more of it in this time. Or yeah, something. that's what I was yeah. thinking. That's exactly what I was yeah. thinking. Like maybe they had some stuff left on the cutting room floor that they added to make it look like they were just sitting around waiting and she never showed up. Yeah, because they were all watching. They are all looking in the same direction. Like we know mm. she's going to appear from that bush over there, you know? So it's a little bit weird, but yeah, it definitely seems like they are waiting for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, Laura, she walks through the woods and she sees Cooper and apparently through a combination of makeup and digital effects, Cheryl Lee is made to look much younger the effect is okay, I guess. Um, like, I guess, you know, they kind of had to do it. They couldn't just have Cheryl Lee as she appears now walking through the woods, probably. That would have been a little bit distracting. Um, but yeah, you can definitely notice that there's some some special effects trickery going on with, with her mm-hmm. look here, for sure. I think it was really uh, well done. I, I think I said in in my reaction video that I thought it was another actor. Oh, yeah. But, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I, I seem to remember that. I think it, it's a scene in in the extras from the Blu-ray, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Where she's entering uh, uh, Lynch's trailer and uh, he's yeah, like, wow, the, um, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's the very first scene from the uh, behind-the-scenes yeah. stuff is um, yeah. Lynch, Lynch is waiting in the trailer um, at night and they're about to film this scene and Laura, or rather Cheryl Lee, she walks in just in her full Laura Palmer gear, and Lynch is just like, "Wow!" Yeah, and I'm like, "Wow!" wow. Like just, yeah. <laughs> As a viewer, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, and Cooper is and um, 
Kyle McLaughlin is there. I think he, you don't actually see him, or like you see him very briefly. He's off screen, but you can hear him. And and Lynch is like, "That's Special Agent Dale Cooper, man." Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, Special Agent Dale Cooper. Wow. And he, yeah, but he's just like he's like in awe of just seeing Cheryl Lee. That was epic. Uh, dresses Laura. I think that was an yeah. epic part of the extras. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a great way to to start off, uh, start all that stuff off. Um, you can take another drink, by the way. Um, yeah, so she sees Cooper, and at first she doesn't recognize him. She says, do I know you? But then she remembers the shared dream that they had, the quote-unquote dream of uh, them together in the Red Room. And uh, Cooper Cooper takes her by the hand here, and as soon as he does, we get a flash to the beach from the pilot. We see Laura's body wrapped in plastic on the beach. There's a beat where the camera just holds on it for a second and the body flickers out of existence. I, I just I, Laura... I lost it at this point. Yeah. I just yep. broke down in tears. I yeah, I, I will fully admit that I I did as well. It's nothing um, to be ashamed of. We all cried, I no. think. I yeah. I was because like the they've got Laura's theme going too. Yes, exactly. And it's like and it's just starting to build up. It's and peaking, then, yeah, it's peaking. Yeah, and it, it hits the climax right as he says we're going home. And Oh god, it's so good. I'm almost crying <laughs> just thinking about it. It was It's so good. It's I god I have goosebumps goosebumps right now. I'm just thinking about it. It was just what the you know, what yeah. the hell? This is mm-hmm. I I think I declared if I didn't say it out loud, I thought it to my I thought to myself that I declared Lynch and Frost the the humongous most biggest geniuses ever <laughs> it was just amazing for me but just mm-hmm. but but at the same time with this really eerie feeling in my in the back of my head all the time like oh no yeah. no 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 yeah no, i had the no. same thing <laughs> yeah i know exactly what you mean i know exactly what you mean i still feel yeah and it's amazing like even knowing what comes next I still feel the same way when I watch this. Like it's I don't I don't know, it's trickery, it's voodoo. I don't know how they did that. It is. It's magical. I have I have yeah, no is. better word for it than it ma- yeah. it's magi- yeah, magic magic in some kind kind of real yeah, form. Yeah, it, it is. My mm. my 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 brain was just was melting at this point. So, yeah, so we see her body disappear and we go back to Cooper and Laura and like you said, it shifts from black and white to color. And he says, we're going home. Now, if you think about it for longer than two seconds, (laughs) you immediately realize that, wait, home is not a good place for her to be. No, it isn't. (laughs) Home is where Leland is. Yeah, and home is where Bob is. Especially mm-hmm. since and, but, in when yeah. we got back to the firewalk with me scenes, 
in this part 17. One of the things that were included that is also in Fire Walk With Me, of course, is, I would say, the scariest shot of Leland dead I know of ever. Right, through the window. Yes. Yeah. And, I mean, it's it, it's been the stuff of nightmare for me since I was 15 or something. 14, 15. So, especially considering the fact that they included that one and then hearing we're going home you know it's not it's not a good idea no the only saving grace may be if perhaps he was referring to home as the fireman's house because that is actually where we see laura originate from at least maybe correct yeah (laughs) Mm mm-hmm yeah, that's where that's what I believe he's referring yeah. to. Yeah, but be, yeah, because we also see, that's true because I think we see a um a short scene from a shot from 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 the portal by uh Jack Rabbit's palace, don't we? Uh do yes, we? Yes, I think we do. Yeah. It's okay, like Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly where I think he's he's, leading he's her. walking I think he's, I he's think walking he's... with her. He's leading her, maybe. Uh, right. It's the right word for it. He's leading her through mm. the forest. And then we get this shot of um, the portal by Jack Rabbit's palace. So it's mm. maybe implied that he's taking her there. M- maybe. Yeah, that's that's what I believe. Yeah. I believe that he's trying to take her to uh, to Jack Rabbit's palace. And I mean, this uh, this terminology, calling it home... I guess tracks when you remember the fact that Laura supposedly originated here uh, as a golden orb, right? So that's like, that's probably what he's referring mm-hmm. to. Like, this is where, uh, you know, this is this is your original start point. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's a whole other, it's a whole other can of worms. Starting position, um, much more comfortable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh huh. So at this point. The insanity is not nearly over because we go back to the very beginning of the pilot and we see Josie, another face that I did not expect to see, in the mirror, that amazing shot of her putting on her makeup. Yeah, talking about about starting positions, this is the first scene (laughs) from Twin Peaks ever. The first yeah, person it's that literally, we see ever in Twin Peaks. Yeah, it's literally the very beginning of the pilot. Yes. And then we move and we see Pete. Which made me very Catherine. happy, of course. Yes, yeah. yes. And also uh, the episode is dedicated to Jack Nance, which I thought was very nice. Um, he tells Catherine that he's going fishing. And then he goes outside and he goes fishing. I know. Uh, what? What? Yeah. Yeah. He got he got <laughs> to go fishing, man. That was the one thing that that, that came I... out of all of this. We saw Pete go fishing. Ah. Uh, what? What? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I just. I mean, yeah. flabbergasted. Before he even gets to the pier or wherever it is, where it's a bit of a some some kind of a plateau where he's. I think there's. I think that's a new shot, actually. Yeah, uh-huh. but it's yeah, really it's, well it's done because double, it looks sure. exactly like it could be Pete with all the clothes right, and maybe the body language is a 
weeny weeny bit off but just a wee bit off maybe but sure he's standing there and he's fishing but just before that before he even gets to that point he is walking and he is not saying you don't hear the mill blow you know and he's mm-hmm. not saying uh, the lonely foghorn blows or whatever it is he says and yeah but what's most important of, of course is that you look beside him and you see in the background you see that big log on the rocky beach and you don't see Laura Palmer and mm. that's I, I, I when I saw that I, I had already lost it a few times so I couldn't lose it again, but I was pretty much losing it again. <laughs> like, what? No, this isn't. This yeah. is not real. This, this. Wow. Why? Mm-hmm. This. How can they do this? This is a genius move, you know. But also at the same time, no, 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 no. This. No, no, no. It's gonna be such a bad thing coming yeah. out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it didn't feel good, even though it was it was interesting and 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 fascinating. Uh, it didn't feel good to me. It didn't feel like this was mm-hmm. something that should be done, um, mm-hmm. it, which I find interesting because it it is seemingly what Dale Cooper sure. meant to do, um, and we're sort of left to ponder why. Um, but maybe that's more of a. A thing yeah. for the for the the finale finale. No, there is um there is a sense of loss here at the same right. time because it's like well, the entire chronology of Twin Peaks is being erased in a certain yeah exactly. Sense. And so, as an audience member and as fans of the show, we're left with these conflicted feelings of, oh my god, isn't it amazing that you know our hero. Agent Cooper saved the poor girl Laura Palmer but at the same time it's like well we kind of need Laura Palmer to be dead for this show to exist which is a tension that is going to become uh, which is a tension that is going to get really rubbed in our faces I think in the finale uh, and I think it's it's a really really fascinating one. Not only that um, for me the most important thing is and this is why I I have to say that I feel like I mean I love Asian Cooper I love the character but frankly he's he's being a douchebag right now <laughs> and the fact the yeah. fact the, the 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 reason I say that is because not only wouldn't we have the series and and all that but more importantly Laura shows to die because she was possessed by Bob Otherwise, yeah. she would have been possessed by Bob, and she chose to take the ring. And I mean, in 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 Firewalk with Me, Fi- uh, Agent Cooper tried to convince Laura not to take the ring. So even back then, he was like propagating for her to not make her own decision in some kind of way. Uh, what to do about uh, with, with her situation that she was in because she was already in this situation she was um, being stalked by victimized by Bob who wanted nothing less 
or nothing more but, but to possess her for real, use her as a vessel, because Leland was, so to speak, getting full of holes, as, as he, he says himself when he's dying. And Laura chose to die instead of, instead of letting Bob get her. Uh, and what does Agent Cooper do with this now? What happens to Laura now, you know? So what happens to Bob? Mm. So in some way you can say that she, he is actively working against Laura Palmer's own wish. And as, as I said before, he could have chosen to go back in time even longer. If he wanted to save Laura, he could have, I don't know, I have no good suggestion in a practical way, but he could have gone back in time mm -hmm. and killed Bob in some way before he even got to Leland or something, you know? Right, gone back to Pearl Lakes and uh, sure, stopped the yeah. whole thing from wrapping Instead, her. he goes back to the day of the murder, the night of the murder, where she's already pretty... She, she wrote in her diary that tonight's the night that I die, you know? So mm -hmm. he's a douchebag <laughs> and I love him, but he's a yeah. douchebag, you know? <laughs> uh, so mm -hmm. what was the purpose of all this? Was it for mm -hmm. him or was it for her? He, he didn't yeah, save her. I mean, I wrote, I wrote here in my notes uh, for this part, uh, it says Cooper quote unquote saves Laura right. in quotes, you know, like it becomes pretty clear that, Cooper here is not operating in the best interests of Laura. No. He is using her completely as a pawn. And I think that that's evidenced by his demeanor here. You know, he's very stoic. He's not at all... He doesn't even seem to have any feeling about it whatsoever. Like, this is just one step on, on the journey to his ultimate goal. Like, he is not a comforting presence to her whatsoever. He literally just takes her by the hand and says we're going home which you know if you remove Laura's theme and all the the pomp and circumstance surrounding this moment it's a pretty it's a pretty chilling sequence yes you know he's not he's he he knows ultimately that he's going to lead her back to the site of her trauma and potentially re-traumatize her all over again you know he is not he is not acting in a way that we would at all recognize as being Cooper-like, you know. Yeah. No, he's acting more like Richard in this in this moment. More of that that kind sure, of like yeah. dead-faced, uh, matter-of-fact version of Cooper. Um, yes. And I, and I would definitely agree that he's not acting in Laura's best interest. Um, and I don't know that the goal was even to save Lara for the sake of saving Lara. I think the whole point was always no. like for for him the that investigation ended in episode 7 of season 2. But this definitely seems to be like like you said Nick that he is using Lara saving her quote unquote as part of this greater plan to ensnare Judy into some sort of uh plan or uh, like second phase of this plan whether or not Lara is a willing participant um the Lara we see on screen doesn't seem to be um whether or not the Lara in the red room is um I don't really know but 
but I, I would definitely agree that th- these actions do absolutely nothing to save Laura Palmer from the trauma that she experienced. That wasn't the motivation at all. And it's and it's pretty uh, it's pretty clear, like you said, by the demeanor of Cooper and also by what happens next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see you can see the the parallels to to the King Arthur legend, I think, and the knight and chivalry, um, the theme the themes of those kind of things as well. Uh, not mm-hmm. only is is Tamara Preston writing in the final dossier that Agent Cooper has this white knight syndrome, but even without that, it's pretty clear to me that he considers himself to be some kind of a hero, or he wants to be. Um, maybe making mm-hmm. up for lost time when he was stuck in the Black Lodge. I don't know, but yeah. um, you know. To, to the to the point that he's not considering the you know not he's not considering what what would this person actually want to do he's not asking her right. and he's more doing it for himself than some for yeah. something else in my opinion yeah he 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 considers himself above the fray it seems to me like like he he is no longer acting as a human being he's acting more as like like we've spoken about before on this podcast, uh, as someone akin to you know someone like Mike or uh, or the fireman, like a, a lodge spirit who has concerns greater than uh, those of of mortal humans, and I think that that's a really startling startling realization here because he ultimately has very little regard for for Laura's well-being uh, as much as it may seem so in this moment yeah um, unfortunately so yeah yes yes exactly so um we cut briefly back to the Palmer house where it would seem that Laura being rescued has made Sarah and potentially whatever entity is influencing Sarah incredibly upset. We get a long shot where all we hear is Sarah off in the distance somewhere, just absolutely wailing. And there's um, a moment where she comes in, she grabs the famous prom photo of Laura and just starts stabbing it with a bottle. And we hear this very intense, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a whooshing sound. Uh, it's like an a, ominous one. It's, it's an ominous whoosh. It's an ominous whoosh. <laughs> there we go. And uh, she just keeps repeatedly stabbing this photo. She's screaming, and yet it appears as though the photo itself is not being damaged whatsoever by her her stabbing it, which is fascinating, and also. There appears to be some sort of loop happening yeah, here. It goes back where and it's forth. like, yeah, yeah, where it's like she's stabbing it and then it goes back and the screen will go black for like a fraction of a second and then it just keeps going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. Um, yeah, apparently this whole event here has really, really upset Sarah in a, in a profound way. Uh, yeah. Just um, I don't 
I, I don't know what to say about this. I mean, do you guys think that this event here has anything to do with Laura being pulled from Cooper's grasp in the next scene? I do. Uh, yeah. I Me think. Too. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, there's no... Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm a firm believer that the things you see on the screen are uh, just kind of all you can really take as gospel. So for me to have have you know these s- scenes cut the way that they are, um, I can't help but see Sarah's reaction, or Sarah. I can't help but see this as Sarah's reaction to what we, the viewer, just saw, and then what happens at, directly afterwards as um, as somewhat of a um, not a reaction to that, but like a, a consequence of that and. I think it would make sense that, I mean, we, we've seen Laura, uh, whoosh off into nothingness in part two. And I think we definitely are, are meant to see this as a parallel to that based on all of this, the, uh, sound design that we get that is similar. Yeah. It's the same yeah, screen, same screen, exactly. but there's also, I think the same whooshing sound. It's all, it's like the sound that you hear when Laura gets flung out of the, the lodge is the sound you hear when she gets sucked out of our existence. Um, but I, I don't know if this was, I think that this was part of the plan. I think that this was part of what Cooper was, was hoping for. Otherwise we wouldn't have what happens next. Like we wouldn't have, well, that's my, that's my question to me. This moment is probably the biggest hole in the theory that, Laura was placed into this weird Odessa timeline by the uh, the forces of the White Lodge because if he's leading her to Jack Rabbit's palace and she clearly gets ripped away before then and we agree that her being ripped away has something to do with um, this Judy force somehow becoming upset then how does it well, no, I then how does I she... don't see it. That sorry if I interrupted you. That... Okay, no, uh, go ahead. No, because I because this is this is a part that I I have some <laughs> yeah um, some trepidation, some confusion about. Okay, here. well, um, I I wrote an article called, um, "Do you really want to fuck with this? The alternative timeline of Sarah Palmer on Twenty Five Years right. a Later mm-hmm. Sight." Uh, in which I argued not necessarily in the way that this is what I believe is the correct truth, but I kind of played around with um, the idea that what if this scene is a consequence, as you said, Dylan, also not 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 like a reaction, but a consequence of what happened if the if in fact uh, Agent Cooper somehow saved Laura Palmer from being murdered and from the final dossier we learned that if she wasn't murdered then she w- went missing instead she she's just a missing person uh, and in this article I, I'm, I'm thinking about what would happen to Sarah in the timeline where uh, her daughter Laura would disappear and just from the face of the earth and Leland Palmer committed suicide a year later it would leave Sarah Palmer all alone and 
again, but in another way, of course. But yeah. without the, the without the so to speak closure that you would have if you indeed knew that someone was dead, instead you go year after year after year with the pain of not knowing where your loved one is because there's there they are a missing person and i can't even imagine but i'm a true crime freak too so i listen to a lot of podcasts about missing people and i can't even imagine how it would be to have someone missing and not knowing of the fate of that person so i played around with that thought and in my in that kind of context this scene with sarah attacking basically this sarah this uh, laura palmer picture was um sarah palmer as a broken 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 down person i think we can all agree uh, considering uh, uh, i mean it doesn't matter what what timeline we're in she's a broken person in both of them, so she's the really sad story in in this um, in this this bigger picture, I think. But in this in this uh, article, this situation for Sarah was, I argued, so unbearable to handle that she didn't know what else to do, and she isn't me- mentally stable, and it could be some kind of manifestation to the grief of not knowing what happened to her daughter in the timeline where Agent Cooper rescued Laura and she was a missing person instead of a murdered person. And just out of her own mind, uh, not not necessarily to do with UD or Zhao Dei or this negative force, but maybe just not not to say only the the grief but the the human um grief is is pretty powerful could be pretty devastating as well so it could be just that in quotation marks uh that made her just take out her frustration and her grief of the symbol of 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 her grief which is the the photograph of her daughter that's that's the way i wrote yeah. about it in the article but yeah I, I i tended to to still think about it in that kind of a way because i refuse to to see it as an evil act i want to see it as, as something else and i i don't refuse to see it as an evil act because of some kind of principle but i it doesn't fit for me to see it as an evil act mm. it's not it's not for me, uh, like I, I've heard a lot of people argue and I'm not saying they're wrong, but I don't uh, I don't subscribe to the fact that she would be like the evil Judai, Zhao Dei or Judy is like attacking Laura Palmer um, out of evil. For me, it's a, it's a human reaction that she is, she is uh, doing for some reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I never, I never read it as um i never read it as evil either i always read it as like sort of a desperation yeah that's a good and word for it. you know yeah and I, I think yeah i think that um i guess because of the way that you know like like you mentioned dylan the way that these scenes are edited together is what makes me really want to ascribe 
ascribe a cause and effect relationship to them. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like we see her stabbing the photo and then immediately the very next thing we see is, you know, Laura being sucked away. So there's just like, there's a part of me that just really wants that, that just really asks like, well, why are we seeing these two events back to back? You know what I mean? Like it doesn't, it just doesn't, um, doesn't seem like a, like an accident to me that we see those two things juxtaposed so closely to each other. I, so as far as what exactly is happening in the literal sense, I don't know. I don't think that her stabbing the photo literally is what caused Laura to disappear from Cooper's grasp. But I do think that because of, again, you know, the cinematic language being deployed here, I think that we are meant to put together that whatever is causing Sarah to become so upset is the same is the same force that that causes Laura to disappear. You know, that's that's just my take on it. Yeah. I don't I don't even I mean, I guess another theory I I have that again may or may not have any validity, but we're all kind of assuming that Judy is the one who takes Laura pause probably because we see the Judy's diner um like when we get to Odessa and we uh which and I'm not saying that it necessarily wasn't Judy, but um, on one hand, like if something has touched Laura, uh, Sarah Palmer, uh, it like what we know about these entities is that they feed off of suffering and anguish, and Sarah's suffering and anguish is a uh, direct result of, of all of the literal plot stuff that we've talked about, including her husband, you know, raping and murdering her, her daughter and then dying himself. Um, but in uh, the world where Lara never dies, that, that particular trauma isn't present. And that revisionism can potentially nullify, um, like, that Judy or the experiment uh, hold over Sarah. And we could be seeing like an act of desperation from that entity. Cause it's not like we just see Sarah do this thing. We hear her like wailing and screaming and crying in the background for a good minute or two before this actually happens. It's a distressed uh, character. And maybe you could view this um, attempt at stabbing her with a bottle uh, or the picture with a bottle as um, the entity trying to recapture that that same trauma and the fact that the the f- photo uh, takes on no damage whatsoever um, could indicate that it's a futile attempt. What's done is done. Um, and so then the consequence of that um, revisionism is that Laura Palmer doesn't disappear. She goes missing. And that is sort of what we see. We see her go missing literally in that moment from, from Cooper's hand, whether or not he planned on it. Um, I don't know, but he certainly had a plan in place for it to happen. And that's what four, three, zero is. Um, none of that would have had any relevance if Lara didn't go missing. And if there wasn't an Odessa, right? So, 
Yeah. We also don't. I, I oh, guess. Sorry. I just. I. What's tripping me up is the fact that they don't actually go to Jack Rabbit's palace, though. That's the thing. Like, they don't actually reach the destination. So, mm-hmm. like, my question remains: like, where does, like, where does Laura go here? Well, you know, we have you have we none of us have mentioned yet the the fact that whenever she disappears from his hand, you can hear the sound that the fire oh, yeah. is is introducing to mm-hmm. us in in episode one or part one and i think that's of big importance in this situation like he's he's telling him as well you have to listen to the sounds and um and then we hear that sound it sounds like a scraping scraping through through metal or something right, like that right and mm-hmm. so i don't see it as 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 the negative force is, is grabbing Laura from his hand, I, I see it as the, the fireman interfering with the timeline that Cooper is trying to create. Just because he is mm. doing it in a way that wasn't intended Ooh, yeah, by the fireman, like he went rogue, hmm. kind of, and the fireman's correcting him somehow. Yeah, because he he realizes that. You, you don't listen to me you haven't or you didn't e- either remember that yeah. or yeah he didn't remember or or maybe that scene that we saw, because that was from the from the very beginning of, of the return i had this strong feeling that the scene with the fireman and cooper that we see first of all after the see you again in 25 years i had a feeling that this scene is not happening now it's happening somewhere later or it has already happened in some kind of way it's not chronologically Mm -hmm. placed at all so it might be that he has been at the fireman's already and and if that is the case then he knows about that sound and maybe he doesn't he isn't listening to it but it could also be that he is being corrected after the fact by the fireman Mm. Yeah, because it doesn't it doesn't look to me like Cooper is expecting that to happen. No, based no, on the long shot, of, like, the long shot yeah. we get of the whole of the woods, and he's just assuming we're he's just staring there, wondering what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he looks worried and he's surprised, and he doesn't know what to do. Quite, he's just standing watching. Nothing. It seems like. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. oh boy, this show. <laughs> um, so yeah. Um, regardless, Laura has been saved? Question mark. And now she is somewhere else. She is no longer in this timeline. She has been placed in a uh, uh, a different reality, a different plane of existence of of some sort. Um, and yeah, this is the point at which we start to hear the familiar strains uh, of an old an old Twin Peaks favorite, uh, The World Spins by Julie Cruz. And, yeah, was very happy to hear this. Apparently Julie Cruz was not happy about it, though, because she was incredibly upset that they played credits over her performance and that it was, like, sort of a truncated version 
of her song. I was surprised to only uh, see Julie Cruz for what, like ten seconds. You're like, oh man, it's Julie Cruz. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, credits. Hmm. Yeah, it was a bit sure. weird, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm sure it was just like time constraints, you know, right. like. But I think it's um, it's quite uh, something that that's that stands out to me here that I think it's important that it's the choice choice of song. Um, because in in the original run, of course, we we heard her uh, singing and saw saw her performing uh, a few, uh, quite a few of the songs from the soundtrack. But this is the one that they chose for this, um, and I I don't think in my I have a gut feeling that it doesn't only has it doesn't only have to do with um, uh, the fact that this song is quite subtle and and you know it's not rocking back uh, back inside my heart or someone it's more subtle and and you know melancholic but i think it also we have to think about in my opinion where when did we hear this song in the original run for me uh is pretty interesting to think about what do you think mm-hmm. yeah we see it it's the um we see it in the uh, lonely souls episode right yeah that's when it happens yeah when um when maddie is murdered yeah and uh exactly Cooper and Cooper sees the uh, giant who we now know is the fireman on stage. And what does he right. do? He interferes, right? Yeah. So he's that he waves his hands around. Yeah, so he's stepping yeah. in saying, "Hey, you know, it is happening again, you know." So Right. Mhm. I think that's quite important actually. Mhm. For this song. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I buy it. It's it's totally it's appropriate on that level. Um, it's appropriate thematically and it's just appropriate musically too it's just um it just felt right to hear it in this moment yeah it did and um you know even if it was only like a minute of it or so um yeah i definitely would have appreciated like a full version of it i think it would have been even more powerful um because i really do like the way that the stage is lit in this instance, you know, because you have like the red curtains behind her and all of her, her band is like shrouded in darkness and you just have like the one shining light down on her. And it's, it's really striking visually. And I think it would have made it even more resonant if we were able to marinate in this moment a little bit more. Yeah, I agree. And, and apart from other performances, I assume this is also to be at the roadhouse you can see the top of the heads of some of the people in the audience, but other than that, it could, might as well have been within the Black Lodge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, that's it for this episode, <laughs> man. Um, this ended up being a pretty, pretty epic episode of 119. Uh, and it's it's appropriate because this episode, I mean, you know, it's like this episode, part eight, and the finale are probably the ones that demand the most in- investigation. Uh, so it's it's appropriate that this one ended up uh, taking a little bit longer. I think. I have um, no idea yeah. of how long we've been talking. What year is this? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't I have know. No idea. It could very well be 2019. Um, so yeah, 
Gisela, thank you so much yes, for coming you. on with this us. Was a, this was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. It was very interesting to hear you talking about this with me and to hear your thoughts about it. Really interesting and fun also. Yeah, thank you for letting me on. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you. Yeah, so uh, everyone listening, if you have not already, go check out uh, Gisela's YouTube channel. It's called Garmin Bosia. Uh, you can find her reaction videos there, as we've referenced, as well as some other Twin Peaks videos. She has like some compilations up there. She has, uh, you know, a, a pretty long video where she answers a bunch of questions from other YouTube uh, commenters and, and stuff, and as well as uh, a bunch of her own music as well. Um, so you want to check that out. And as we've referenced, she has a bunch of writing at 25 years later as well. Um, so, yeah, Dylan, buddy, we've, we just got one left. I'm sad, It's incredible. Man. This was so fun. I know. I know. It's, it's wild. Yeah, we hope you guys will join us for tomorrow's, or not tomorrow, God, my brain is fried. <laughs> I can't do it tomorrow, for, Nick. Please don't make me. <laughs> for next week's, uh, finale episode, it's just going to be me and Dylan. We're, we're taking it old school. Uh, and by old school, we mean like five weeks ago, um, before we had guests on. Uh, so yeah, if you would like to find us on the internet, you can email us at 119podcast at gmail.com. You could find us on Twitter at 119podcast. Uh, my name is Nick. You can find me at strenuousorb on Twitter. And Dylan is on Twitter at piffdylan. Uh, so yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks again to Gisela. We really appreciate Thank it. Thank you guys. Um, yeah, and uh, we hope you guys will join us next week on 119, a Twin Peaks podcast. Thanks, guys.